you have anything written on your coffee cup? Camelback. I have, hello, I love you. You gave me this mug. Did I? Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? I think that's why you, you gave it to me. I don't think I got hello, you that. Hello, I love you. You know what? The, the podcast has started, and <laughs> if you are brand new to our podcast, welcome. Welcome. Sometimes we start off with a really cool intro and a very formal song. Other times we're just... We always start with a great intro. What are you talking about? That was a pretty good intro right there. No, the, you think? I the mean, song. Do people know the podcast has even started? I mean, we're just... Uh, what we like to do is to imagine that we don't have... We're not t- speaking to a... A crowd of people we're speaking to one we're just speaking to you yes and whether you are driving to or from work you're out for a walk with the dog you're stirring up some coffee and creamer right now you're out for a run whatever you're doing we are talking directly to just you so we're stoked you're here this is episode 12 12 what and we're about to hit a hundred thousand downloads we're about to have a big old celebration pretty cool yeah, it's pretty awesome. So stoked that you're here to join us. Yes, thank you. Thank you guys for listening and for being here. I do want to start off today by sharing a couple more reviews. The last three reviews that were left, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read them. <laughs> All right, ready? This one's by Jess. Jess says, I love listening to Sally talk. Oh my gosh. I'm <laughs> so glad I found her on iFit and I was motivated to run a half marathon because of that. I've been following her ever since, and I really enjoy these podcasts. Maybe they'll motivate me to run an ultra, or maybe not. <laughs> they're, they're about so much more than running. They're about life, too. Mm. I love Sally's storytelling. It makes me feel like I was at the race with her. Okay, I love that. And Eddie and I have said many times, this is not a running podcast. We do talk about running a lot, but we like to use it as a parallel to life because running truly is just an incredible parallel to life on so many levels and in so many seasons. So, yep. And I just, the reviews that people write are so thoughtful and kind. Thank you, Jess. Yes. That was a good one. Next one is from the real Katie Lee. This one says, I followed Sally as a runner since Billy Yang did a few YouTube documentaries on her many years ago. And it's been so inspiring to watch her develop as an ultra runner and see how much she gives to this community. This podcast has so much information and inspiration jam-packed into it. The project is so inspiring, and I've been loving following along. Thank you, Sally and Eddie, for sharing the journey. Five stars. Awesome. Nice. Very cool. Thank you. And the last one. This might be my favorite. And it's the most recent. No, yeah. I, I don't know. This is from... Soleil, I think. Keeps me smiling and energized. I love the two of you. You guys are the best. You guys have the best time talking in your podcast. I typically listen to the episodes during my morning run as they come out. Then, when the U-turn version comes out, all of the things I'm visualizing with how you two might be talking comes to life here. Sally dancing with her two hands in the air about the person saying I can listen to her all day was so real in gesture and reaction. Love the playfulness humor and realness eddie you add the chill and the humor that is needed in a podcast love it you absolutely add the chill can we talk absolutely i think most people that meet eddie they i think they're probably surprised because of the incredible balance you bring to a relationship i can be chill but like you know a lot of the times i'm very high energy go 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 (laughs) i'm a little loud at times 
And Eddie just brings this peaceful chill. I love it. I need it. You're like my, you're, I, I, I like to refer to you as like my redwood tree. Well, can you imagine if I was like you? That would not work. <laughs> It'd be fireworks that nonstop. That would be bad. It would be just a collision of power struggle constantly. Yeah. <laughs> so those are great reviews. Thank you guys for, for sharing those. Thank Appreciate you it. so much. And I, I, I just can't believe that it's been less than a year. And I don't think uh, a week goes by that we don't get some pretty thoughtful and just encouraging feedback. I think for us, that's what that definitely keeps us going. We're like, okay, yes, like people are are enjoying this. And um, you know what? If you are looking for a way to help us um, put out these podcasts more frequently, we'd love to do once a week. Ultimately, it would be my great joy to do twice a week because we want to bring in, especially for 2023, more consistent um, guests. Um, we want to do even some live podcasts and just we have some other ideas that, you know, I like to dream big. I like the big picture, go big uh, type thing. But Eddie and I have so much fun together and um, we would love your continued support. So probably the best way to support us is by downloading our app. Sally McRae Strength App. I feel like this is you get something in return uh, for supporting us this way. We have like a, a, there's a few different options for how you can get the app. So check out the link um, in the show notes. You can also find that link at any time, um, always in my bio on Instagram or my website, sallymcrae.com. But you can download the app and get it for a full year for 99 bucks, which comes out to like $8 a month or $2 a week. And every week I upload new workouts. I have training plans. We're working on a half marathon and 50-mile training plan. All my training plans are free for everybody in the app. And my training plans that are in there, I very much coach you. So every single day you open it, there's a full-blown description. Even as you lead up into race week, I talk to you everything from gear to nutrition, pacing, mindset. These are very full uh, training plans that I've poured myself into and uh, we've been getting incredible feedback on them. I think the most consistent uh, communication we've gotten about the programs is that just people feel stronger and they feel mentally tougher. And that just warms my heart because that really is the goal. I want to help people reach their goals, but I want them to feel strong and confident every step of the way. So you can also just download the app. And if you just want to support monthly, that's $14.99 a month. Um, but all in all, you can try the app for 30 days for only a dollar. So please check that out. We are super stoked about the community that's in there. Um, we have a few thousand people in our Sally McRae Strength Community page on Facebook. And uh, most of those people are, are in the app and doing different workouts. And it's been really fun to interact with them on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I like to call them the community the strongest community around. So come join the strongest community around. Um, we appreciate your support and your belief in us and what we're doing here in the podcast and the app. Um, we can't thank you enough. So, but a quick note now, we're just going to dive in here before we start into the meat of today's show. I said this at the beginning. I like to imagine that I'm talking to a party of one. So I'm just, I'm talking to you. And um, I think that anytime you listen to our podcast, one of the things that Eddie and I hope to do is that you have 
a, a nugget of gold that, that you get to take away with you, something that you can hold on to for the rest of the week that you can think about or that you can apply immediate, immediately to your life. So um, we want this time that we're spending together right now to be beneficial to you. So yeah, we have some stories and some laughter and um, hopefully a little bit of encouragement for you, but we, we're hoping that every time you listen that you have um, gained a little something for yourself. So you know, this, this podcast, we very much do talk about mindset. We talk about the parallels with running and life. And so I want you to take a second. Um, this is, this is kind of something that is going to be applicable as you listen to the podcast and after, but I want you to think about, um, some of the big things that are going on in your life right now. And whether it has to do with family, your training, um, friendships, your career, I want you to think about what, what you're focusing on within those big things. And this is a really important ex- exercise that you should be practicing on a daily basis because it can actually change your life. Your perspective and your focus um, are very powerful. A strong focus, uh, especially when you're focusing on the good, you focus on the things that you're grateful for, it can propel you forward. When you focus on the bad or the negative or the things that aren't going right, it can kind of cause you to hit a standstill and kind of go into a downward spiral. So um, think about what are those big things in your life right now and honestly ask yourself, have I been focusing on just the negative or have I allowed myself to look for the good? And I know for some of you, it's like so hard to see any good. (laughs) I've been in those seasons before. But try and dig into, have you, have you really found the good or things that you can be grateful for even when it's hard? And I want you to remember this as we share in this podcast because you're going to be able to apply and see the parallels that we're trying to teach you. But also, um, by the end of it, you'll understand why I asked you that question and again, this is for you. This is, I, you know, you don't need to write in your, uh, your answer, although you can. I love people that have been sharing. We get people that share with us their stories every single day now. And I'll be honest, some of them make me cry. Some of them really encourage me. And they also make me feel like I'm not alone. So um, you can definitely share what, what it is that you're going through in your life right now. But asking yourself honestly, have I been focusing on the good or the bad? Have I been able to find something to be grateful for? Have I been able to find the blessings even in the hard times or not? Okay, let's get started on today's uh, podcast. We are now at race number four in the Choose Strong Project. And this race took us all the way to the other side of the world to Crans Montana, Crans Montana, Switzerland. Crans Montana. <laughs> Crans Montana. Yeah. I don't know if that was Italian. <laughs> that was like a, yeah, I think it was more Italian actually. And for actually. those even in Switzerland, it's, it's very, uh, I don't, they have like three different languages they speak there. So uh, a lot of people, sp- like where we were, there's a lot of Italian mm-hmm. um, that was being spoken. And then they have like this Swiss German dialect. It's like Tyler or um, Drew, one of our um, camera guys from BPN, he speaks German, but he had a hard time understanding the Swiss German dialect. So yes, there's three different languages there. And um, at this point in the story, so as 
For those of you that have been following along with the Choose Strong project, I am running 512 miles, which is basically a month for every year that my mom lived. So we are now, before the race, 336 miles into the project, um, climbing about 70,000, 75, no, 55,000 feet and 55,000 feet of descending, climbing and descending. And so body's kind of tired. A little weary, a little beat up here and there. But at this point in the story, I also tell you how old my mom is and how old I am. So at this point in the story, my mom is 33. I'm eight years old. And one of the things that I chose to focus on in this race is her great love for running. My favorite memories with my mom are in the mountains. So growing up, we didn't do family vacations. Um, that wasn't part of the budget ever. But our family did get to go to these church camps up in the mountains for free. So our family of seven got to go for free because my parents worked. Um, they signed up to, to be teachers and take care of the kids and do the, the kids' classrooms um, each and every day. And so our family then was able to go for free because they did that. Well, the, the, our church was one of the biggest churches in the nation at the time. And um, they would put these camps on four or five times every summer. And so it was really awesome because we would, we would go multiple times a summer. So that was, that's where I fell in love with the mountains. And these are in our local mountains here in Southern California, um, in Lake Arrowhead, for those of you listening that are familiar with Lake Arrowhead, more specifically Twin Peaks. Um, that is where I spent many of my days, but typically we'd go two, three, even four times a summer. And um, it, only one of the times our whole family was able to go. The rest of the time it was just mom and the kids. And so those are, were some of just my, my favorite memories of her. And I just remember every time that we went, our beat up Ford Fairmont station wagon, we'd take that thing winding up the mountain and every single time it would overheat and we'd have to get out of the car and wait on the side and wait for it to cool down. I remember all five kids, is it, has it cooled down yet, mom? Has it cooled down yet? And we'd slowly, you know, make our way up. But every single time we rolled into that parking lot and we stepped out of the car, I vividly just remember my mom taking in this big, deep breath of pine-filled, thin air and the smile on her face, she was just so happy to be up there. She said, I love that smell. And consequently, Christmas was her favorite time of year. She loved bringing in that fresh um, Christmas tree into our house. Um, she always had the cinnamon candles and, and the pine tree smell going in her house. And so I've always equated that with her. I've always equated um, her love of mountains and just remembering so many sweet memories. And, and so as I uh, got older and I started ultra running, and, you know, learned about trail running, um, I really leaned in to the races where I could spend as much time in the mountains as possible. And that truly is why I love the 100-mile distance and choosing races all over the world where I get to run in the mountains. And uh, my mom never got to travel. Um, I think the, I think she, at, at, as far as states went, I know she went to Oregon, um, maybe Nevada, but that's about it. But she never got to do the traveling that I've done in my life. And I, I would say that um, just two years into my professional career, when I started getting invited to race around the world, um, I took every opportunity I possibly could. I said yes to everything. And really the, the main reason why is because I wanted to see the world. Um, I didn't even really care what the distance of the race was, whether it was a 50K, 100K, um, you know, 160K. I just wanted to see the world. And 
I really believe that the opportunity that I have been given as an athlete um, to race around the world is for so much more than just the running. And so um, I was invited to this race, Wild Struble by UTMB. So it's by the UTMB um, World Series as one of their featured athletes. Now, typically in the past when UTMB invites me to races and I've been invited um, pretty much every year, you are, they do have expectations of you. And so the expectations are that they're hoping that you get on the podium. Uh, you're a good representation of, of an athlete who has trained hard for that race specifically, and that your eyes are set on, on, uh, having a very strong, fast performance. So I was a little hesitant at first to put this into the project because, um, there is no part of this project that has to do with me focusing on placement, um, time or whether or not I'm in the front. Um, consequently, I, I mean, I ended up finishing 10th woman, second in my age group um, in this race, um, which I was really grateful for, but that was not something I was aiming to do, um, but very grateful that Wild Struble was so supportive of me and, and just everything surrounding the event and the way that they actually promoted my Choose Strong project and were cheering for me along the way. So this was a very special time as I remembered my mom in the mountains. I don't think I could have chosen a more beautiful course. Uh, this was Eddie's first time to Switzerland. This is my sixth time to Switzerland. He's never been able to accompany me in the past. Uh, I've raced UTMB five times. Um, I've raced in Italy at a different race three times. And, you know, every time I come home, it's, you know, it's me trying to explain to him, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. And then I, I, you know, you have to see these pictures and I got to eat this food and this coffee and meet these people. And, you know, um, what's your response usually been when I talk about it? Uh, well, me, <laughs> when you come home, it's usually us trying to like explain all the hot pocket wrappers and McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty pathetic diet once you leave. Are you saying I'm a great cook? Can yeah, that's exactly what I'm Can saying. We just talk about that for that's a minute. exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, so Eddie hasn't been able to come with me for so long. He was a teacher, which has always been incredibly helpful when I do travel because he's on the same schedule as the kids. And so um, he holds down the fort while I, I've been traveling and racing. So this year, um, he was able to come with me and. I think that just made the whole trip a hundred times better and to be able to show him all of my favorite places. And we'll talk about it later, but we were able to travel to France and Italy as well. Cause the area that we're in, you can drive an hour one way and you're in France, drive an hour the other way and you're in Italy. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. The Swiss Alps, um, more specifically the Italian Alps are like my favorite place in the world. And I, th I think I told Eddie at least 48 times while we were there can we just move here? Can we, <laughs> please? I would love to live here. So Eddie's, uh, Eddie's first time, my fifth time, um, remembering, I usually have a word for every time I do a race. And so my, my word for this race was gratitude. I knew that, um, you know, my body being a little bit beat up that I would be very tired. Um, I still have a little inflammation on my knee from that very hard fall that I took at Leadville 100. So that is still very much there. Um, it's not debilitating. I'm still able to run. Like you can't even tell when I'm running. Like my, I don't, I'm not limping. I don't have a change in my running gait. So I know that's a good sign and it's slowly getting better, but very, very slowly. So some very deep swelling there. 
Um, just a quick tidbit, because I know a lot of people are very curious about my training. So before I talk about the race, what did those 20 days look like between Leadville and Wild Struble? Um, and this race was just about 110, 111K. Um, they call it 108, but it was 68 and a half miles on, on my watch and um, over 20,000 feet of climbing in that short uh, distance, uh, shorter than 100. So um, it was a very aggressive race. I would say it ran more like a 100 mile race. But my training in between was very specific. So uh, very low mileage. And really my goal is to make sure that my body is as rested and strong as possible before I get to the next start line. So that's really been the focus between every single race. And it has worked very well. Now, I do want to be very specific. I'm going to give a little side note here. My, um, my aerobic base the aerobic capacity I have is, is pretty big. And that is as a result of years and years and years of consistent training. So, um, the reason why I have that confidence when I stand on the start line, like, yeah, of course I can go the distance is because I put in the training for many years. And even starting at the beginning of this year, I was consistently putting in the miles so that when it came time to hit the project, um, I no longer needed to focus on huge weeks in order to help me maintain that type of running. I just need to make sure that I was maintaining fitness and strength in my body. So putting in the work first, building up those aerobic um, miles, building up the, that aerobic base was very, very important because this entire project, um, I've never worried in between about, like I, I, I don't even think since the last time I went on a 20 mile training run, was before bad water so this was all the way back in june was the last time i went out and ran a 20 mile training run so um on top of that the longest distance that i've run as far as like going out and doing a training run in between races i want to say is like 12 or 13 miles and i only did that like once or twice so everything else has been time-based um making sure like okay, i'm gonna go out for 60 to 75 minutes i'm gonna stay in my aerobic heart rate um, I love fartlek style workouts that just flushes out the legs. It allows me to get some good leg turnover and they're a relaxed style of, of speed workout. It's not like a tempo or an interval workout where, um, you know, I have very structured rest and recoveries or I'm trying to hit a certain pace. The fartlek is, you know, I can go out and be like, you know what, for 30 seconds, I'm going to just run hard, whatever pace I feel like I'm just going to run hard based on feel. And then I'm going to rest for one or two minutes and then I'm going to do it again. Um, and the whole idea is just to get that good leg turnover. So that's really the, uh, what my running has looked like in between every single um, race. I don't typically even get on trails or in the mountains. Um, I've probably only been on trails a handful of times. Most of my runs right now are just straight from my front door. I'm running around in neighborhoods and then I do spend almost every single day, one to two hours in the gym. I do spend a lot of time on the stair mill. So the lead up to Crans Montana, I would be on the stair mill for up to 90 minutes. And for those of you that aren't familiar with this machine, I would say hands down, it is the toughest cardio machine in the gym. And it's basically like a treadmill, but it's just stairs. So not the stair stepper, the stair mill. It's a beast of a machine. Eddie, you love that machine. Yeah, I like it. How long have you you been doing that? How long have I been doing yeah, it? Yeah, I feel like you've been doing it for like a few years now. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
but how long, like in duration, when I get on it, it's not very long. I sweat <laughs> after like the first eight minutes. And right. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. A 20 minute session on that thing is solid. Yeah. Like I, I highly recommend it. I mean, if you are in the gym and you plan on just lifting that day, throwing that in at like after a lift session, dude, what a great way to finish you out. I mean, it is, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, it does challenge you because all you're doing the entire time is climbing. So I typically will do it one or one or two ways. I'll do intervals on it. Um, so I might climb for like the first 10 minutes, just like at an even moderate pace. And then I'll do like these 30 to 60 second, really hard, fast, um, intervals and I'll have some good rest in between. And then other times I wear a weight vest and this is probably one of the safest places to wear a weight vest. I don't always recommend wearing a weight vest in the mountains unless it's like really light, like six to eight pounds, which would more assimilate a pack, um, just because of your joints. And so if you can climb heavy, uh, without having to worry about going downhill, dude, the stair mill is awesome. And, um, this was key to my training for Crans Montana because I knew that these climbs would be anywhere between one and three hours of climbing straight, no descents, like just straight up the mountain and straight down. So, um, and then aside from that, the weight training that I do is very specific, uh, to the day. So sometimes it's just, I do a Metcon style, um, training where I'm going like hard and fast with like light to medium weights, not much rest in between exercises. And I'm just getting in that high calorie burn, um, you know, stamina, muscle fatigue, endurance training type weightlifting. And then other days, um, I want to go and just lift really heavy and just see how the muscles are doing. So, um, with the high mileage of these races on top of, you know, coming back home, putting in that weight training, um, getting in some good food, good sleep. Um, I have was able to make it to the start line of Crans Montana feeling overall very strong. And um, when we arrived, it was the race was Friday morning at 9 a.m. So it was a very late start, very late in comparison to Leadville. Leadville started at 4 a.m. Crans Montana started five hours later. So me and the crew, uh, Tyler McCain and um, Drew Darby from BPN, they are the uh, film and media superstar guys that have been following me all over uh, the world and um, are putting together just in an amazing film. But they... Um, you know, we all got there together, all four of us, Wednesday night, and it was raining, lightning, thunder. We went for a little run, and then Thursday was a photo shoot day. We took a amazing gondola ride to the top of the mountain, beautiful views, got a lot of pictures, and then we came back down to um, what I was very excited to show all of you guys the, the very, very distinct difference between racing in Europe and racing in the United States because Europeans just treat trail running very differently than we do. They're very serious about it. They're a little bit more formal. They make a very big deal out of it. They make a big deal about their athletes. They make a big deal about the course, about um, every aid station that you'll be stopping in. They really take pride in that. Um, most of the European races have you, you basically climb up into a mountain and then you descend into a little village and then you climb up another mountain and you descend into another village. So, um, they love showcasing their country this way and the cities that dwell around these mountains. And 
So this was um, after we finished our photo shoot. I knew that as as one of the races athletes that I would be asked to come on stage and and do a little presentation and and so we made our way to the city square and there's music and there's a big stage and they have um all these different places you can get food and they have all these seats and chairs set up and um and then out come the live performers Eddie what did you why don't you share with us what what did you think of that whole presentation yeah that was super cool I actually I thought it would have been better if they sprung it on you or all you elites that went up there. They're like, all right, now you got to do this Swiss, like traditional folk dance with us. How cool would that have been? Yeah, they did have uh, some folk dancing yeah. going on. And uh, I'll tell you what, when I raced in Austria, they actually did do that. Because they had you dance? They had me sing. Oh, I knew you. Yeah, every- and everyone. They gave me a microphone. They're like, by the way, we know you love Sound of Music, which is where Sound of Music was yeah. was filmed. And they just like cued their band and I had to sing Do a Are you gonna sing it? <laughs> yeah, that would have been fun yeah, if you had to very different. To dance. They didn't ask me to do that in Leadville. Yeah, that was actually super cool though to to watch the they had like a couple guys doing like a flag ceremony like <laughs> I don't know what you call it but yeah. choreographed moves which was cool and then it was a dad and a son and come on let's be honest Eddie Eddie and I were giggling because I was like can you imagine you and Isaiah doing that like going out and flipping these flags together because it was it was the son was about the age of our son and then you know when you're supposed to be quiet and serious and and respectful and then all of a sudden someone says or does something funny. And you start laughing uncontrollably and you're, you're trying. But then as you try to stop laughing, that makes it worse. worse. Yeah. I can't tell you guys how many times since I've known Eddie, since we were 18 years old, this has been <laughs> an ongoing occurrence in our relationship. Like I literally cannot sit next to him and be serious. This happened yesterday when we were at church. Yeah. Like we could not stop laughing. It was, it was embarrassing. Like we are embarrassed trying so hard to not laugh there's tears coming down our eyes and it's over something so dumb so dumb so we're watching this dad and their son perform this flag routine which they're like throwing these flags up like in the air and like spinning around and they're wearing like this costume and i was like all i'm doing is envisioning you and isaiah and i just can't like (laughs) i can't right now and so we just like lose it eddie films it sends a video back to isaiah here in the u.s and they then start bantering and anyway so there was that part of the presentation <laughs> i thought one of the coolest parts was the the two guys probably like in their 80s blowing on the the alphorn instrument okay Those... eddie looked up the name of this by the way don't let him fool you that he knew what this thing was called <laughs> yeah cuz it was so interesting to me but it was such a and if if you guys don't know what that is, it's it's that what is the nineteen late nineties Ricola commercials, you know, and Ricola. they're on the yeah they're in the, the Swiss Alps there. Um, okay, you have that, to explain it. What does this thing look like? Well, it's that long. Well, if I I mean everybody knows now that I said do the they? commercial. No, yes, they don't. of course they do. Okay, you just dated yourself. How many so people what? have seen the Ricola commercial? They can Google it. <laughs> on youtube there's people it's the, running right now they can't google it. all right so Explain it's like that <laughs> super like i don't know they're like 10 
12 feet, 15 yeah, they're feet. they're like 15 feet long. It looks like a flute that's 15 feet long with a giant bowl at the end of it. Yeah, it's like a big opening and the guy's got, he's just like blowing into it, right? Like making these noises. But. Can you imagine if they had those in school? Imagine that case. Imagine right? that instrument case. Hey, son, you decided to. Uh... Playing the Alporna. <laughs> Thanks. What gave that away? Just walking down the street with it, trying to catch the bus. No, but I thought that was neat. But yeah, just all the traditional pieces that they incorporate and, you know, the things that we don't see when you go to uh, a race, you know, in the States here. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. So we uh, so we had that on Thursday, and then we had a really good meal. The people at the restaurant where we ate were incredible. The chef brought out, like, an extra little starter for us. And and then at the very end, we were, we were trying to get our check. And this is a little side note here in Switzerland. And I'd say in every time I've traveled to Italy, France, we are reminded of how different American dining is mm-hmm. than than in Europe. And I'd even say like most places I've been to when I go to even like the Latin countries and I feel like Americans were very used to prompt service and we want things fast we want our server to be attentive quickly and usually we are in and out of the restaurant but also I feel like the restaurants want that too the restaurants are we got to quickly turn the tables and uh, you know I, I worked in a restaurant for seven years and that really was we were taught you have to go to the table within 30 seconds. You have to check back within two minutes. You have to bring the check um, within two minutes of them taking their first bite. You know, it's all about get as many tables in the restaurant as possible. Flip these tables as fast as you can. And that really is the way that Americans do things. Like we want things quick and we want things to be done, you know, in a certain amount of time. And every time we ate somewhere, I felt like Eddie was like, wow, where's, where's our check? I might have to go ask for a check. <laughs> Literally every time I did. Every time because – and I appreciate this each time I've gone to Europe is people really – they appreciate the art of creating their food. They they appreciate that when you sit down as a party um, with your friends and with your family that you're going to sit there and have this wonderful conversation. It's this time to connect and to be social. It's a time to really enjoy the food and your surroundings, and it's so relaxing. I know that Americans have the reputation of being overworked, of moving too fast, of taking too much on our schedules, and so I always appreciate observing um, around me when I go into these restaurants. I think Spain it was one of my favorite places to go to because you literally see people sit for hours, nobody's on their phone, and they're just talking and enjoying the day but even more so to go into a restaurant where neither the server or the managers that work there care how long you sit there they want you to enjoy yourself so by the end of our meal Eddie was like okay yeah we'll you know we'll take our our check he's like what you're already done and we'd already been there for over an hour Mm -hmm. which is long and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, we're, we, everything was great. Thank you. He's like, no, 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 you must stay. Don't you want dessert or do you want, you know, like a, a cappuccino or Americano? And, and we're like, no, we're fine. And he's like, no, no, no. Like he would not take no for an answer. And he's like, I want to treat you with what was it that he gave us? It was some lemon like whiskey <laughs> So he brought out these four (gasps) drinks. He's like, these are on me. Like, I want you to sit and stay a little bit longer. And yeah, yeah, it was like a 
sweet lemon something. Yeah. I don't know. I, I had a, a, a little taste and ended up giving it to Eddie. But our dining experiences there, I, I loved it. I felt like each time we went, it was this invitation to just sit back and relax. Mm-hmm. And that isn't always easy to do for us because we're, we're just not used to that. We're, we're in and out so quickly. So I'd say that this entire trip as a whole, it was like life slowed down for us and being in Crans Montana if you're not familiar with this place it is a popular resort in the Swiss Alps um, very well known for skiing and in fact they have like some world championships that take place there but even while we were there there was like mountain bike races and golf um, big golf tournaments and lots of outdoor sports happen in Crans Montana it was just such a beautiful amazing part of the world and so yeah we finished off with a an awesome dinner that night I don't think There was a single day during our trip where Eddie and I slept through the night. (laughs) So we were pretty tired even on the race morning, but it was a calm and relaxing race morning. So we had breakfast uh, by the lake and we walked back to our hotel and I very casually and leisurely got ready for my race. I mean, it was so weird to start a race that late in the morning. I think the only other race I've ever started late is UTMB, which starts at six o'clock at night, which that's a whole nother story. That is a very weird time to start oh i guess bad water too. bad water 11 yeah. p.m uh, that's a whole nother level but starting a late morning race when you just want it to get started um it kind of messes with you a little bit but it did make for a very peaceful morning so thankfully the rd of this um race told eddie tyler and drew you guys can go wherever you want you can film wherever you want um obviously the only time they were allowed to crew me and Eddie was was the only person crewing me. Tyler and you never crew me because they have the cameras and they just have a totally different role. But Eddie was allowed to crew me just at the specific aid stations, but the race director was so thrilled that, you know, that the boys were getting coverage and we would be filming this beautiful race as the first year of the race. So they just showed us on the map, this is what you need to do, this is where you need to go have fun out there. And then Eddie, I guess I'll kind of let you go from there because, um, his experience was entirely different from mine. (laughs) Of course, I'll just say really quick when the race started at 9am, I was so excited to be out there. I really, really was, but I knew by mile three, oh my gosh, my, I'm tired. I, mile three. Yeah. By mile three, I was like, my, my body's really tired. And what I did in that moment, I, I know as soon as I can get like a good assessment of my body, my number one go-to is always, all right, now say something positive about it. It's like, I'm tired, but like I get to be out here in the Swiss Alps racing. Are you kidding me? It's so beautiful in here. Um, and so that was really what my go-to was the entire time because it was just gratitude. I just kept on focusing on all the beautiful elements of this race. And I'll tell you what, for anyone that is interested in racing in the Alps, or let's say that you're trying to get into UTMB, like the big race in Chamonix, and you're not able to do this race instead. It's only like a week and a half or two weeks after UTMB, um, because every single inch of this course is, it's unreal. I mean, you, mm-hmm. like, no picture does justice. I know, Eddie, you've posted some pictures on your Instagram um, lately, but even those pictures, they just do not do justice to the surreal beauty that you see. And that's just what I chose to do. I said, I'm tired, but I'm still moving. 
And I also, right before I got to the really big climb, I had to make the choice. So um, I brought poles with me the entire time. Usually UTMB races say that if you start with poles, you can't drop them off. You can't pick them up later. If you, if you want to use your poles, you start and you end with them the entire race. So knowing that, um, I have my poles, but I had to choose pretty much right away because I was so tired. I did not use my poles until the last I want to say 12 miles of the race. Um, I didn't use it till the very end. And the reason why was because I knew that the best way that I could get through the course, if I was already very fatigued and the muscles weren't strong, was by eating. And, you know, for those of you that are brand new to ultras or interested or curious about ultras, there is a ongoing uh, joke that we say that um, ultras are actually just eating contests because at the end of the day, it's also one of the number one reasons why athletes fall, um, aren't able to make it to the finish line is because uh, they don't have a good nutrition plan or they're throwing up, but they're not able to keep anything down. And if you can't keep your fuel down, it's very hard to keep moving through the course. So for me, I knew I need to fuel my body extra. And so every single climb, I was just eating I mean, I ate a lot. I was putting down some calories. Every time I came into an aid station, I would try to find as much real food that I was able to keep down. And that what, was the main course. What were the things that you were eating? Because I'd love to <laughs> chat about the differences between what's at these aid stations in Europe versus <laughs> oh, yeah. what's in yeah. aid stations in Tyler the States. Tyler and Drew and Eddie were so enamored. And I say enamored because they're like, dude, can you grab us some of that <laughs> at these aid stations? So in Europe, they they love um, they love their pastries and they love their meat and their cheese. If you race anywhere in Europe, you're gonna see a ton of sugary treats. So I'm talking like full blown chocolate cake, every type of cookie, uh, even sometimes some some candy bars and some other type gummy. But they also love meat and cheese and bread, full blown pasta. Uh, it's, it's like good stuff, but for the most part, I don't eat any of any of that towards the end, the meat and the cheese look great, which usually I do crave that kind of stuff anyway, after like I hit past the 50, 60 mile mark, it's like, you kind of want something that's a little bit meatier, has like some fat in it, but I stuck to their fruit side of things Mm -hmm. and their crackers. So I had a lot of crackers, chips, bananas. Um, I ate a lot of oranges Watermelon. watermelon those are like pretty much my my go-to uh when when i'm racing in europe and over the years and this is one of the reasons why i don't ever prescribe to a certain diet people are always so curious about what's your diet what do you follow i don't i'm a big believer in eating whole food wherever you go in the world i travel so much that i never wanted to tie myself to a certain way of eating because I feel like there have been so many times that I've been invited into somebody's home in another country. And, you know, food is very much an act of love. It's an act of service. It's a way that people connect. Um, it's the way that we socialize. And so I never wanted to say, well, I'm sorry, I don't eat that. You know, I want to be able to eat meat. I want to be able to eat gluten and all those things. And I, I, I don't have any health problems, so I'm, I am able to eat 
pretty much anything. There are some things that don't make me feel great if I eat too much of it, you know, like sugar and dairy and things like that. But this has also helped me when racing around the world because I know I can come to any aid station around the world and I, there's always something that I can grab onto and eat because I haven't trained my body to only eat uh, a certain food group or, you know, only these few things. So while I love, you know, eating whole foods, I love to have like my own nutrition too. You know, I use G1M, BPN's um, endurance drink, which works very, very well on me. But I only got to see Eddie like three times he got to crew me. So that really meant I only got six bottles of this stuff because I get two bottles at a time um, throughout the entire race. And so I knew, okay, I need to train my body just to keep on eating and drinking whatever is in the aid station. So that's the, that's the aid stations, but let's go on and talk about your experience because what Eddie was experiencing (laughs) was like nothing he had ever experienced before. He was getting around the wild Struble mountains. So we circumnavigated this whole course is a loop. And so you, you circumnavigate around wild Struble mountain. And I'll tell you what, if you've never driven in Switzerland, and I'm talking specifically in the Swiss Alps, uh, let me just tell you briefly, it is not the same as driving here in uh, America, in Southern California, or even in our, our mountains, I would say, because the roads are, I would say, almost original to what they were when they first built them. They did not have big cars, SUVs, and buses in mind. However, people seem to figure out a way to drive on them with these giant vehicles. <laughs> yeah, the roads were tiny. They were so small. And, and they were two lanes. I mean, that was, yeah, they, most people of them. would be coming at you and you're like, where are we going? Because I'm going to crash straight into you and somehow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that was fun. I mean, it was, it was so different, but it was definitely, uh, it was fun because it was so, because it was so different. You know, you're, I remember that one, I think it was later in the race when we went and found you. I can't remember what mile it was, but um, Tyler and Drew had this on the map. They found you because they wanted, they had this cool backdrop they wanted to film you in. And so we had to kind of go up the side kind of road. But man, getting down, I like, they ran with you down, chasing you, and I, had to kind of this make my way the beginning down. of the race. It was, I don't think we'd even hit mile 20 yet. So I was making my way up that big climb and they took the gondola up. No, no, no. This is later because oh, okay. this is so like the third, yeah, the third station I saw. Yeah. But I had to go down and man, I, I had probably at least five cars coming up. <laughs> um, and I think it was like kind of the end of the day, people are coming back home. And so they're coming back up to their houses up on the mountain and I'm coming down and there were multiple times where we were just like face to face and they're okay, well, who's going to back up? Oh, you got to back up. Or I started backing up and the guy's like, wave, no, you come multiple times. We did that. And then, yeah. And one time the guy went off someone's driveway to let me go and they come back. But the whole time you're just jockeying to, yeah. to get down, um, which was cool. But then, you know, then you got cows <laughs> that were in the way and man, that was, that was, yeah, it was fun though. It was cool. 
Yeah, let's talk about what you did on the train. So in the very beginning, um, I'd say not even 20 miles in, um, Drew and Tyler took the gondola all the way up this massive climb. So the climbs on in this race were steep, very, very steep and very long. So I don't think I ever climbed for less than an hour. If I hit a climb, it was going to be a you know hour and a half, two hours of, of just straight climbing, steep switchbacks, um, rocky terrain. Um, the higher you went, especially at this point, all of a sudden the weather changed. So I remember as I got, as I was nearing the top of the mountain, I had to stop and get out some warm clothes and gloves. And then when I got to the top, all of a sudden Tyler and Drew are up there. Yeah. I had no idea that they were going to do this. Now, from the top of the mountain to the next aid station is nine miles. There's nowhere like other option for them. So I'm thinking that they are up there to just film me at the aid station. So you get to the top of the mountain. There's an aid station up there. And they start running with me. And I'm thinking, oh, they're probably going to run for like half a mile. And then they're going to turn around and go back because they have a lot of time to get back. But they kept running. And they kept running for nine miles. And we we were hitting all types of terrain. I, I couldn't believe it because they're not running with GoPros. They're running with full-blown, huge camera equipment. And they have their packs on and they've got different, you know, different types of cameras with them. They're pulling out these big cameras, filling up film cameras and then digital cameras and, the, and then their big video camera. It was it was surreal. I just kept yelling back to him, telling how amazing they were and how stoked I was that they were getting this footage. Because at the top of that mountain, you hit a lake, this big, giant, beautiful lake. And then you run past all these refugios. So you're running past a lot of people who have been hiking in the mountains. And, you know, one, a really popular thing to do in the Alps is to go on these several day uh, packing trips. So you'll maybe hike for 15, 20 miles, and then you stop and you sleep in this nice warm refugio and they serve you food and it's just, you know, beautiful landscape. And then you get up the next day and you continue on. So we are passing a lot of people that were hiking. And as we hit these refugios, you know, we have all these people cheering for us. That was another thing that I really loved is every city you hit, there's all these people just sitting in their chairs. They're so excited that you're racing. Mm -hmm. The entire cities come out and they watch and they cheer and they got their cowbells out and they're, you know, they're clapping for you and they're yelling out your number, or your name on your bib. And it was just, it was incredible. But what Drew and Tyler did to keep up with me was amazing. Cause that section, I'd say the first four miles were pretty solid, just straight running. Like there was, it was like you hit the top and it was like a flat section for a few miles. And then we started de descending the mountain, which was very rocky and it had rained. So it was like these jagged, rocky, wet rocks. And they're chasing after me with their camera equipment. I mean, I, I can't wait to see what this film looks like, but um, what were you doing during that time when the guys were chasing me with their cameras? Yeah. So I dropped them off. They took the gondola up and they started running down and I at that point, I went to the first aid station that I was able to crew you at, and which was mile 26. Mm -hmm. And the way you get there was by train, but you have to be in your car. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like a ferry for the car, but the cool thing was I went like through the mountain. That was pretty rad. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was kind of a, a cool experience for me, just kind of park on this big train along with other 100 cars or whatever. And you basically just they just take you through the mountain and 
out on the other side in 20 minutes. It's pretty cool. <laughs> and that was your first time doing that. That was, yeah. It was kind of, at first it was a little sketchy because you get on and you're like, I'm stuck in here and in my car, <laughs> but we're moving and I'm going through a mountain. And how many cars I, are with you? Is it just over, like again? There's over 100 because there's 10 per train car. Like, and there's there's at least 10, Unreal. 10 plus cars. Yeah, so there's probably 100. It was, I mean, it was moving pretty quick, and but it was a cool cool experience but that was the only way you get to the aid station yeah these aren't modern day roadways yeah so i don't i don't know how long they've been doing it that way but that was sincerely the only way yeah i mean it was beautiful the first probably five ish minutes that you know you're on this this train and you're looking around you're just seeing like the river next to you with these old houses just dotted in these green fields and and then you go in the tunnel for 15 minutes or so and then you pop out and you're seeing more of the green lush uh you know landscape and it was super super pretty but um yeah it was a cool experience to get to that that first aid station Mm -hmm. i think for me too as as the race went on because i you know again i couldn't believe the guys ran with me all all the way to that aid station so then i i got to see you Mm -hmm. um i think i had i changed my shorts um at that aid station because i was chafing so bad thankfully i had like my my tighter biker style (laughs) shorts with me so I changed into those and got some good food. The guys took a rest there, so they stopped running. Um, I think I was still feeling pretty good at that point. Like I was moving really well into that aid station, was having great conversation with runners around me. That was the thing too. The into- I ran with guys the entire race. I don't think I ever ever outside of the first two miles ever ran with women it yeah. was i i ran with guys like the entire time yeah that was the station you came in yelling all right one marathon down yeah a couple left <laughs> let's go that's right yeah you so i was up. like a marathon in yeah and yeah i i think at that point too realizing oh yeah this isn't 100 miles like i kept having to remind myself like wait this isn't a 100 mile race like we already have 25 miles down and so that felt that felt really good i think that kind of hyped me up a little bit and and, you know, changing, getting in some good food, you know, just moving on from that aid station. I think what I just tried to tell myself was the importance of continuing to eat and to drink. And as I left that aid station, I was like, wow, my, my legs are really tired. And so I slowed down a little bit, kept on eating and drinking. And then you guys found me again, just like four miles later. There you guys were. This is right before the biggest. And Fine. I'd say one of the t- Yeah. I don't know if that climb or the last climb was the hardest, but this was a very, very long climb. And I had a new experience at this point in the race. So when Eddie and Tyler and Drew found me again, this is now mile 30. So we're roughly almost halfway into the race, about six miles away from halfway. And we enter this valley and it's massive. And like Eddie said, there's cows everywhere, giant cows with horns. They all have these enormous cowbells on. Yeah, cowbell is a real thing, you guys. Like, the cows literally wear these things. So that's all you hear. You're entering into this beautiful valley. Mountains are shooting up on both sides. Those bells were huge, huge. too. They were massive. Like, like like the size of a basketball. It was like a church kidding. bell. Like, yeah. I was like, how does that all that guy's in How, how yeah. do they go to sleep? Like, you kind of feel bad for them, right? You're like, it's just constant. I yeah, guess they it get constant. used to it. Yeah. Like, this is my life. Well, the, these <laughs> ones were really cool because they also had, like, big, like, almost bouquets on their head. Yeah, some of them had yeah, bouquets. Was, so I don't, I don't know, know if why. there was a festival going on yeah. or what. Not all of them did, but... A lot yeah, of them did, yeah. Some of them had bows. So we entered into this valley. Super and incredible scenery. 
And in the distance, I can see people already like halfway up this climb. They look like teeny tiny ants. And I'm like, holy smokes, this is a massive Beast. climb. I mean, miles. This is a, a few miles at least. Every climb in this race had a false summit. And I had to, by the time I hit the third climb, tell myself, yeah, that looks like the top. It's not. Sally, don't think it's a top. Don't tell yourself it's a stop. It's not. This one, I totally thought I was at the top. And then I turned the corner and it was another mile of climbing. And that one almost crushed my soul. <laughs> but, but then I told myself, okay, no, we're still moving. We're moving well. It's okay. Started raining at that point. So I threw on a jacket. But in these races, when that happens, do you ever like under your breath start like cussing, cussing. out the RD? <laughs> That ever happened. Do you know how relatable that is to many people <laughs> listening right now? Because I think at some point, for those of you that race on the trails, you probably have done that before. Where you're like, especially for those of you that are so married to your watch, and you know that they said it was going to be a 50-mile race, and when you hit like 50.5, you're pissed. Yeah. You're like, I still don't see the finish line. After the race, <laughs> you give them that firm handshake. You're like... <laughs> Thanks Punk. for an awesome race course. <laughs> By the way, it wasn't accurate. Um, no, as, as, I, as I started up this climb, there was a woman running down at top speed in jeans and a T-shirt with 40 cows coming after her. And she was yelling this, I don't even know what it was. It was kind of like a song or like a, a chant type thing. And all the cows were just following her. There was two guys in front of me. We're working up the trails. And I, I look up for a second and I, I'm not used to this. The guys in front of me clearly were because they barely moved. I went flying off the trail, like running hard into the meadow because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, all these cows are running straight at us. And a couple of them were like, moo. They start mooing as they're going down. They were moving so quickly, but I'm pretty sure that same herd is the herd that hit you. Yeah. And one of the cows hit your car. So it, it is 100% <laughs> the same herd. And I you said 40. I'm guaranteed there was like 140 because <laughs> there were so many. So we were moving up these long kind of switchbacks through the road that was honestly a little bit wider than a car, like yeah. barely. You have some video of it. So we're moving up, and we see that same lady coming down <laughs> in her jeans, <laughs> and behind her, so many cows. And we're going up, and they're all coming. I'm like, I look at Tyler, and I, I don't know what to do. Like, what do I do? And she's motioning to me, like, like I don't know what she was saying. She was saying something <laughs> to me in a different language, but motioning me with her hand. And I'm like, so I just start putting in reverse and I start moving back. Like, do I have to go backwards down all this that I just came up? Like, I don't know what to do like these. And then she's like motion to like get to the side. And, and like on the side, it was like kind of this, you're in a little ditch. And then it kind of goes up the cell. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, and I had no, cause the cows were coming a lot faster than I was moving. Right. So I eventually just had giant to cows. get to the side. Not the cows I've seen here in California. No, these were giant. They're like enormous. And so they're coming towards us and, She's still kind of yelling, and then the cows are there. And all of a sudden, there's like a couple that go up the hill to get around me, and the others go to the right. And I seriously, the one like came so close to the front of the car, and then they were so big and awkward, and like the back of it's like it slammed into the like back side of our car, our rental car. And I'm like, hey, buddy, like <laughs> this is a rental, like be careful. But I had nowhere to go, and it was, you know. <laughs> but that was pretty comical. I, I've never experienced that, and that was pretty fun. Yeah. 
Pretty yeah. looking cows, but man. They're, they are. They're beautiful. But when Eddie told me this after the race, I was like, how's the rental car? Yeah. Because our rental, it, like our rental contract was very strict. They're like, if anything happens to the car, there's no repairs. You will pay for the whole you thing. You will buy it. You will buy it like, for $42,000. We're like, yeah. what? <laughs> so when you told me a cow hit it, I'm like, ah, <laughs> are we going home with a car? The cow, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the cow barely hit it. But because the car was so small and the cow was so big, it felt like it was like, yeah. you know, rocked it but yeah it wasn't that bad but that was a cool experience it was a cool experience again a unique experience that you will not have here in the united states the things that we do as crew <laughs> to try to find you as a runner-up this up is in the very true Jeez. i mean the the stuff that you guys did both on foot and just driving i'm even thinking of the last so now we fast forward to because when i saw you again it was like mile 40 something um, I was coming down the backside of that climb, and this was so adorable. Both 47. Drew, yeah, yeah Drew and Tyler were not expecting me. And I'm coming down the mountain. I'm entering into, like, this this meadow. And I see both of them are just shocked that I'm already there. I think you guys had thought that I was going to go a little bit slower. Oh, yeah, that's Yeah, right. yeah and, and Drew starts sprinting uphill. I mean, this hard hill. He starts sprinting uphill to try to catch me. Then Tyler drops into the meadow to, to cut me off. And these meadows... They're just ankle busters. It's potholes everywhere, soft uh, grass, clumps of dirt. So they're running with all, you know, all heavy and awkward with their gear trying to come after me. And eventually they both catch me. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't believe it. So, you know, we hit you. That was like mile 40 something. They then ran with me out of that aid station. I think that aid station was pretty pivotal. This is a big one because this is also where they are serving pasta, full-blown pasta, pasta sauce, everything. Um, I got some good food there, was still feeling good. And then I left, uh, Drew and Tyler filmed me, I think for a, like a solid half mile to a mile. And then, um, we're approaching like the evening. Yeah. So that was morning. actually a mile. I wrote down here, mile 36. Was oh, 36. That, yeah, okay. So then, um, as we start to approach the evening, we, I, I start going up this hill. I think it was the steepest part. Uh, so far even more steep than some of the mountains is this hill like on a farm it was really funny because it was just this grassy little goat path and I have my two headlamps with me I can see that gray clouds are now starting to go and it's been a beautiful day the entire day we've got blue skies um, like the best temperature I'd probably put my jacket on twice at this point but only at the top of, of the climbs like sometimes the weather just changes up there so I you know maybe only needed to put on a jacket for like half hour here and there at this point and then um, at I then begin this really really long 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 climb I feel like it goes on for a couple hours and I still, you know, I'm still trying to make myself eat and drink. Um, as the sun sets, I don't start feeling that great. Like I can tell that my stomach is kind of turning. My body, I, I think at the end of the day, my body is just tired. You know, it's just fatigued. It's I, I almost feel like if it, if it could talk, it would say, really? Like, I don't got anything else to give you, Sally. Like, we're done. This is all I have for you. But so then I start having conversations with my body. I say, hey. Like we only got now at this point, I'm, I'm past mile 40 as I hit this aid station at, at this point, it's like, wow, we got like less than 20 miles. Like we can do this. Um, the sun sets, I throw on my headlamp. Thankfully I had two headlamps with me because I know so many people can relate to this. One of them had been on the whole time. So it was totally, you know, about to die, but thankfully my other one was okay. So I start making my way 
in the night. I'm not feeling great. Um, I go through this really steep descent that wasn't marked amazingly, but partly because it was in and out of farms. So it was like, it was, there was markings. You just really had to look for them. And I think partly being very tired, uh, the sun was setting. I know better at these points in races, but it is very important to be super focused on where the markings are. When the sun goes down and as you become more tired in the race, the markings are key. That is not a time to get lost. So I think I had to backtrack three times to get back on course, but it was never more than like 20 feet. It was like, oh yeah, why did I turn this way? Like the markers over there. I could always kind of see um, from where I was, where I made my mistake, thankfully. But as I descended, um, I saw Eddie... I think that the, so this is the last time you were able to crew me. Um, what mile was that? 40, 47, 47. I came in not great. I was very sweaty. I was a little bit wet. I think I'd hit some rain too. Yeah. So my whole body was just like, I didn't feel good. I hadn't eaten probably in over an hour. I was having trouble getting stuff down. So I came in and I just said, Hey, we kind of need to do what we did at Leadville. I need to do a reset, but I don't think I need a long one. Like I didn't want to like sit and lay down or anything. It was just like, I need to eat some good food. I need to have some soup. Um, I'm shivering and I knew I was going to go into the coldest part of the race as well as one of the, the toughest climb of the entire race. And also I think the highest point of the race. And so when I'm that tired and kind of out of it, sometimes I don't make good decisions and so Eddie was like, you know, you should probably change. I was like, I don't know. I just want to change. I just want to eat soup and go. Like, I don't want to waste time. And he's like, no, like, he's like, I know you're going to feel better. Like, you're going to feel so much better if you can just put on, like, a dry sports bra and a dry shirt. And, you know, let's get you um, a beanie and, like, make sure that you, you just, like, feel good. So how long do you think we spent in that aid station? It's probably 15 minutes. 15 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Because you sat for a while. And then you decided to change, and then you came back, and you sat for a while, and you started eating some soup. And oh, yeah, I started talking to people, too. Started talking Sometimes that bit. helps me, like when yeah. I just talk to other people. I talked to a couple girls. So by this time, I think I was in seventh, like, the entire day. Yeah, you were. And then by the time I hit this aid station, I knew. I was like, it's going to be a grind getting to the finish line. Um, I had had a goal. I told the guys, I was like, you know, I should be able to do this, like, in 16, 17 hours. I don't see a problem why. I mean, I think the girl that won ended up doing it, like, in 16 and a half hours or something like that. But I thought, you know, 68, almost 70 miles, 20,000 feet of climbing, the types of climbs and the terrain I knew would significantly slow down um, my time. And I thought if I can keep food down, if I can at least just give my body energy, regardless of being tired, that I'm, I'm going to be able to move okay. Um, so a few girls had come in. So I was like chatting with them, chatting with people that were coming, other guys that I had been running with. And that really helped. But I, I finally said, okay, Eddie, you're right. I do need to change. I said, but you need to help me because getting off a wet sports bra is really hard at this point in a race. So I'm so grateful that he was there as my crew because for you ladies listening, as you know, uh, I've, I've giggled and laughed with many of you who have said that you've, you've had to use your partner to help you take your sports bra off <laughs> because those things are just, it's like taking duct tape off your body. I mean, they're so hard to put, to take off. So, um, we got on some dry clothes. I got in some soup. I think soup is so key in the cold stages of race. You're warming up your body from the inside. And man, I left that aid station feeling so much better. So I, I left, I started running. And then we hit this really cold section next to the river, and then it started to rain. And I think at that point, 
is when I started dry heaving quite a bit. So this was now um, 13 miles. I think I had left. I had left to go. I was like four or five miles in after leaving Eddie. And, um, I hit this super dark Valley and I can see the big climb in the distance and you just see, it's like ants, these teeny tiny specks working their way up this massive mountain. And it did two things for me mentally. One, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get up that thing? Cause I, I was not feeling good. I just, and I, and I, I kind of expected it. I was like, I know my body's upset. It, it wants to stop. It doesn't want to process food anymore. Um, I was taking sips of water. I was dry heaving on water. And when I start doing that, I know I'm not in a great place. But to my surprise, as I'm watching these lights go up, I see in the distance aid station. This is the one aid station I, for whatever reason, I didn't know about. I knew about all the aid stations in the race, but like somehow I had missed that there was one right before this big climb. And right as I'm about to get the aid station, Eddie, Tyler, and Drew pop out. And I'm like, what? Oh my gosh. And it was just like this overwhelming uh, burst of energy for me. I mean, they totally lifted my spirits, made me so happy to see them. It was, it was like the best thing to see you guys before going up this climb. Cause I was not doing well. And I was so happy there was an aid station there. Cause I thought, okay, I'm going to take five minutes. I'm going to try to get some Coke. Like Coke was, I, I never do this in the races, but I knew I needed it all day. I drink Coke all day. I never ever do that, but I needed the sugar and the caffeine all day. Um, but I took in some Coke, I took in some soup and then these guys gave you coffee. Yeah, they right? they were they, stoked. I mean, we so we weren't. It was very off the beaten path. Like it took like us. like you're not allowed to crew there. So Eddie did yeah, not crew me there at all. But the race director had given them permission to go there and film. And film, yes. So that's why they were there. So we went up. Yeah, the very sketchy dark. It was so dark, and you know, we made it up there, and it was just a small aid station right before very that big small. climb. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was cool to, to see. But you, they, you like kept your distance so far from, I don't know if Eddie was like so concerned, but like he like stayed outside of the tent. He's like just looking around the corner at me. I was like, you're being weird, dude. But I, weird. I didn't want to like get you in trouble. I wasn't I allowed to do like anything. Like they were allowed to be, well, you were allowed to, be, you had the permission from the race director, but I know I, and I appreciate that because we never want it to seem like we're we have an advantage or that we are operating outside of the rules. But it was really funny because he actually posted this on his Instagram. The next day I was like giggling. I go, you look like a full on creeper because <laughs> his film of me was literally him outside the tent and he's like moving his camera along. So you can see like the outside of the tent. He's like, Sally getting Coke. And I'm like, you're such so a creeper, creepy. dude. Well, that was super funny because that aid station. Yeah. They were, they were excited to see us and you, you left and, and started climbing. And they offered us a coffee. They're like, oh, we got hot coffee. And it was like really late. Mm-hmm. We were super tired. So we, we were able to, to get in there. So it was funny because there was a lady in the race. She was, was behind just after you left. So she kind of came into that aid station. And, and it was a kind of a narrow entrance into, into from the trail into the aid station. Oh, yeah. And so she was like standing kind of right in the entrance there. And I was by that tent kind of being creepy and <laughs> and uh, trying to get in to ask the guy for some coffee. And I was right behind her, probably like two feet behind her. And she was, I didn't like want to tell her to go. But anyways, she's just like standing there. You can tell she was like in some pain. And all of a sudden she let out the biggest fart ever. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. And you're right behind her. Right behind her. <laughs> And this is my first time hearing Yeah, this. she was like in some pain and then she let that out and then she like goes back in the AC. She's like, oh, all right. You know, and gets some like soda or something. I was like, oh my gosh. 
was awesome. Welcome to ultra running. Yeah. Beautiful moment in the Alps. I love it. Well, after I left, the aid, yeah, the aid station crew captain was, or the aid station captain was so I, I think he loved that Tyler and Drew had these super cool cameras and and I think people had been aware of them even before the race, like at the presentation of the bib. So they were saying something to each other all excited, like, Do you guys want coffee? And so Eddie had a two and a half, three hour drive. Three yeah, almost three hours. Back yeah. to the finish line. And it was sketchy. And this is in the middle of the night. So they And it was raining. And you know, as much as I try to remind Eddie he Take care of yourself, sweetie. Like, I always come to AC. Are you eating? Are you drinking? <laughs> He's just so focused on, like, the task at hand that um, Tyler and Drew even tattled on him. They're like, Sally, all he's had today is a loaf of bread. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> gosh. That loaf of bread, though, was amazing. <laughs> like, we we knew that we had a long drive ahead of us, so we hit, like, the local coop, you know, the, yeah. the local the, store the there. The coop is the grocery store there. Yeah, yeah there's one, one every corner. But so we went in there, and... We're like, let's grab something to eat and yeah, make and they our have way. like wraps and salads and sandwiches that you can grab. What does Eddie grab? It was a fresh, <laughs> like big loaf of like that rosemary. It was so good, and I got that like a green juice, and we went on our drive, and I was just nibbling on that that bread. It was so good, so good. Best meal I our family had. loves bread. I'll just say that it was I th- really all, good. all four of us appreciate some good bread. It was just so fresh, made, I you know, know, probably an hour before. It I was know. If, if you, uh, that is signature to, I'd say, Italy, um, France, And it was only like two bucks. The bread. Yeah. It's so pure. It's like the five ingredients. It was like baked that day. It's soft and, oh, so delicious. But yeah. it was funny that Tyler and Drew, at one point when they were running with me with the cameras, I was like, has Eddie been eating? They told you. <laughs> I'm literally, I asked this like every race. They, they kind of laugh about it, but... They're like, yeah, all he's had is like a loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> so it was so neat when these um, these guys working the aid station were like, do you guys want some coffee? And I was there when they offered it. I I was grateful for it. As your wife, as I'm making my way up the mountain, I'm like, I'm so glad he's getting coffee in him so that he can stay awake for this long drive because Eddie typically doesn't rest when he crews me. And, you know, that's why I always say, too, you know, your, your crew – um, especially your crew chief, you know, they, they're working hard. I always think that the easy part is running. You're being taken care of all day. You just need to put that effort in and, and you know, just move forward. But the navigation skills, um, having to problem solve, not knowing what kind of runner <laughs> they're going to be greeting, you know, is a runner going to be on a high point, a low point, you know, and, and not only that, then just a, when you're in a foreign country, navigating roads and all of that, it, it's really stressful. So I didn't know until that aid station, I was like, oh, cool. I, for, in my mind, because I was only at this point now, 12 miles from finishing. Yeah. I'm thinking, wow, you guys, like, you're going to be able to get back in 30 minutes and you'll be able to sleep. And then Eddie's like, no, we have a three-hour drive. I go, what? (laughs) No way. Like, I thought we were all the way around the mountain. But you were saying that was probably the sketchiest drive you've ever taken in the rain, too, at night. Yeah, it it was just long and in the rain and didn't really know where we were going. And, yeah, it was 13 mile run for you, and it was a 90-mile ride for us. Yeah. But we made it. Yeah, survived. I, oh, you definitely made it because this is the section where I slowed down significantly. 
I got past quite a bit here in this last section, but I made my way up that mountain. Um, I'd say halfway through up that mountain was where I, I kept on trying to eat and slowly I just was able to only um, get down my liquid calories. And then I'd say by the time I reached the top, I was barely able to be getting in water. But I knew at this point too, I was like, all right, I have roughly eight miles to the finish. And, you know, I've done a lot of training runs in the past, in my past years in training. Every now and then I will do um, runs just to test myself how well I do on low calories. Now, typically I'll do that where I'm close to like a store or a gas station or something. I'll go out for like three hours and see how well I run. Yeah, I, I always have water, of course. I, I don't do like a full like hydration depletion, but I just see how well I run on low calories. And I don't recommend doing that every single weekend. But for me, it's just in those moments when you know that you are either maybe way further than the aid station that you thought. For me, it's more like a, a mental training. Don't freak out. Like you, you are going to be okay, especially you've been eating all day long. And for me, I have been eating all day very, very well. So I knew that I wasn't like in this extreme calorie deficit, but what I did know was the clock was ticking against me where I would eventually be. And so with eight hours left, um, I still had a little bit of climbing to go, a pretty technical descent, and what I was about to find out, some um, really crazy sections of the course, navigating swinging bridges, these big jutting rocks that required you to literally crawl on hair, hands and feet to get under them. The course was going to be very slow going. So the last couple miles, or, I'm sorry, the last couple hours, um, I had barely any calories. And so I knew being able to keep up a, a solid pace was uh, that would be diminished would be diminishing and I would end up finishing, you know, in a much slower time than, you know, than maybe I had hoped for. But my overall goal in this entire project is has been to get to every finish line as best as I can. So as I got to the top, which again was two false summits, <laughs> this one was very hard to swallow because you're watching the light, the headlamps ahead of you. And there was so much hope that was given to me as I was watching those headlamps. They're so far away, these little tiny dots. And I just kept telling myself, if they can do it, I can do it. And I think about that so often in life, how even when, and, and I know that the, the people that are way ahead of me, they're grinding too. It's not easy. A lot of those headlamps were probably in a rough patch as well. At the end of a race like this, um, when you have climbed so much, when your body has been beat up by these technical steep descents, you've been out there for already 15, 16, 17 hours, and now it's raining and it's freezing cold. I mean, we have all of our layers on now at the top of this climb. I'm looking ahead and I'm thinking it's, it's hard for them too. And they're grinding too. They're tired too. And I can still see them and they're pulling me along. And so I would tell myself, just grab onto their light, grab onto their light, Sally, like keep your eyes on their light. If they're moving, you can move too. And it was such like a, a powerful uh, moment for me. I actually thought about, you know, wanting to share that today in the podcast, how, um, how much that relates to our life. Like when you are going through it in your life, when you're going through a tough season, when you're in the grind, when you're in that moment and that disappointment, you don't always know who's watching you. 
And sometimes it's your kids at home. Sometimes it's your coworkers. It's your fellow students um, or classmates. Um, you know, it's extended family. It could be people on, on social media that follow you. Your ability to keep going despite that gives other people hope. It isn't always the people that have this smooth sailing. They're successful and fast all the time. They're successful in all their goals and their career. Their families are always perfect. Those don't always give a message of hope and inspiration to others. It's those that keep going despite it all. We all have seasons that are great where life is going well, but who are we when things get hard, when we hit that grind, when we don't know if we can keep on going? For us, it's powerful to keep going, but we don't realize is there are a lot of strangers and a lot of other people that are watching us. And many times that's when we need uh, the motivation the most. And I know for me, you know, having this, having this uh, be race number four and me being very focused on the fact that I will get to the finish line, I still have those moments in the race where I'm asking myself, wow, I'm, I'm really tired. I'm not feeling it. Like this, this hurts. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know how I'm going to be able to get energy to keep going. Um, I have to have those sources of hope and inspiration too. And, you know, in this moment, as I'm working my way up this mountain, it was just looking at the lights around me. And I love that idea. I know we've all heard it before that you are a light, you know, you, that idea of like shining your light, um, that your life and just who you are as a person represents, you know, um, a light in the world. And I just love that. Like when you live, you're a light. When you move throughout the world, um, you're guiding other people along as well. So I just kept that in my mind as I as I moved up the mountain, um, as I got to the top, what I thought was the top and it wasn't. <laughs> and it wasn't. But what the cool thing was, was when I turned the corner, I, I realized I was like, oh, I guess I was climbing a little bit better than I thought. As I turned the corner to the actual now rode to the real summit, uh, there was about 20 people right there in front of me and I could see they were moving very, very slowly. And a few people that had stopped and kind of leaned over on their poles and some people sitting on the side of a rock. I think at this point, a lot of people were feeling how I was feeling inside. It was like, really? There's a whole other section that we're climbing to get to the top. And so um, I just kept on moving forward. And when I reached the top, I audibly said, yes, heck yeah. Like, heck yeah, I am done climbing all the big climbs in this race. There is still like a little like half mile climb I needed to do um, in the last five miles. But overall, the big mountain steep technical stuff was done. And I began descending down towards this beautiful lake and dam area hit the final aid station before the finish line. I was able to get down maybe an ounce or two of Coke. I tried eating a piece of food and promptly had to walk out of the tent and spit it out because that did not want to stay. Um, I did my best to keep the Coke down, continued out of that aid station. And now the tricky part of this race was a lot of bridges, um, bridges that were Oh my gosh, they were, these bridges were suspended over like thousands of, like a thousand foot drop into darkness, into nothingness. I am not afraid of heights. So dangerous. 
I'm not I'm not afraid of heights, but this is also how Europe does things differently from the United States. Some of these bridges were like you just hanging on to little ropes on the side. Like I'm not used to that. And I think because I couldn't see, you could just hear. You could hear rushing wind and you could hear waterfalls down below. This whole race, there's water everywhere, lakes, rivers, um, waterfalls. And I remember this one particular bridge um, it was, I guess it had been previously, um, or not too long ago, it had been rebuilt, but it, it went across, I want to say it was probably like at least 200 feet across. And as I hit the middle of it, I could feel a runner get onto the bridge and start swinging from side to side. And it's like, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning by this time it's pitch black. There's, there's no civil light anywhere. So it's just your little headlamp and you're feeling the abyss underneath you and I actually I I've never experienced I started freaking out I I was like oh my gosh what if I fall like this is what if there's like so then I'm like hyper focused on the wooden slats and I'm seeing all these wooden slats with cracks in them and, I, and then I'm like what if I fall through like then it's my mind just playing games on me you know I just start thinking all this stuff and when I get to the other side I'm like thank you well then I hit this section where I see this volunteer just standing in in the middle of the trail on the side of this mountain and she says to me in broken English as I started talking most of the time I spoke Spanish I usually get by very well speaking Spanish when I race in Europe because um, the Italians usually can understand understand Spanish and sometimes there's a lot of Spaniards Um, I ran with a lot of Spaniards actually in this race it was awesome Um, but I usually get a better response when I speak Spanish. And so I start speaking to this woman in Spanish and then she starts speaking to me in English (laughs) and she says, you know, watch out for the rocks. And I was like, all right, well, I turn the corner and I see that the bridge now that I have to go over it, there are these giant rocks coming out of the side of the mountain, hovering over the bridge. And I'd say that the rocks only allow me about I think they're maybe four foot up from the the bridge. So I have to bend down. At some points, get almost all the way down on my hands and knees. And this continues for a solid mile. You get off the bridge, you run a little bit, and then you hit another bridge where you have to like bend down. And again, off to the right-hand side, so the, the mountains on the left of me, off on the right-hand side is a really sketchy handrail. And so you're crossing over like these big crevices and there's like these drop-offs. And this is at night. Like it was so (laughs) sketchy. I don't think I've ever been on a course like this before. And, you know, it's it's got to be safe, right? (laughs) Because there's hundreds of people doing this race. And so we continue on. I slow down significantly. I think even at the end of the race, you guys were like, yeah, we didn't think you'd go that slow in that race. I go, well, there was a big half mile climb. And then there was all these super sketchy bridges and rocks jutting out. Like you couldn't run it. Like you had to walk and bend down and kind of navigate all awkwardly. Once I finish that, and now I probably only have, I have less than a mile, less than a mile now to the finish line. I could just feel that I was close. I'm still like locked in the forest at this point. And then all of a sudden I'm just spit out onto the street right next to the restaurant where Eddie and I and the boys, we'd, we'd gotten coffee and food several times uh, that week. And I see the big lit up Crans Montana sign that's on the other side of the lake. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I did it. I haven't gotten to the finish line yet. It's probably like I have like 600 meters now to go, but I knew I would be finishing. And now it started to rain 
and Drew hops in right behind me, starts filming me as I make my way to the finish line. Eddie and Tyler are there waiting, and there is not a single soul out in the crowd. I, I don't even know if the first place girl got any type of audience because we started at 9. Um, I think the first place girl finished like at midnight, and I finished like at 3 or 4 in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 4 o'clock in the four, morning yeah. is when I finished. There was nobody out there, but there was something so cool about that. It was really, really peaceful, but like so beautiful that the only people waiting for me at the finish line, well, there was a couple race organizers because yeah. um, they, I got like a plaque and a medal for finishing um, second in my age group, 10th woman. They gave me like some cheese and some beer and stuff like that. It was actually really cool, yeah. but it was just really precious to cross that finish line and just see Drew and Tyler and Eddie waiting for me and knowing we did it. We're, we're now 404 miles down, 75,000 feet climbing down. Like we are, we are so far into this project. We don't have very many, a little over a hundred miles left, but that was such a sense of relief and a great feeling of joy knowing that we were able to get that one done. Cause that was, that was a very difficult race. I mean that the climbing and descending was just next yeah, it was, that was that was next level. Yeah, no, that that finish was very anticlimactic, but it, like you said, it was a sweet kind of moment in the rain and just for you to be done and and yeah, it was it was neat. It was cool. Yeah, I think the uh, our our hotel was our hotel is like a hundred yards from, from yeah, the finish line. right there. It was right there, so that was also really sweet because mm -hmm. right after we were able just to walk straight back to our room and I'll let you guys in on a little secret after every race I I'm pretty beat up and Eddie doesn't stop crewing me he's always like what do you need what, can I get you something to eat can I get you something to drink can I help you take off your shoes and socks I'm always like seriously you want to take off my shoes and socks he takes off my shoes and socks every single time and I usually end up falling asleep just like that like in my race stuff and but I can never sleep after a race so I usually fall asleep for like an hour it's like a nap and then because my system is so um on on high alert from all the caffeine I've had and just what I've done to it it's still very much up and ready to go so I'll nap for like an hour and then at some point I'll get up and painfully take off all of my uh race gear and get into the shower but Eddie always props up my legs he grabbed a suitcase threw a, a towel over it, took off my shoes and socks, um, got me something to drink, tried to get me to eat something, and I fell asleep pretty quick. And then I just finished off my loaf of bread. <laughs> he did. He's like, you have to try this. <laughs> he did. <laughs> so I tasted a piece of his loaf of bread. It was quite delicious. <laughs> I'm telling you. So good. So that was our race. And I think some of the biggest takeaways from the race, the most important thing that I learned while being out there was just the power of focus. And, you know, I'd asked you guys earlier in this race to really think about when you're in the grind, when you're in something that is challenging or the season that you're in in your life right now, where do you always find your focus going? Do you focus on 
all the negativity, the things that you can't change, the things that are letting you down, or do you sift through and really search for the beauty and the good and the blessings in it? Because I'll tell you what, that's always hard to do. It's so much easier said than done. It really is. And I've been on both sides of that where, um, I've, you know, I've had seasons where I'm like, really one more bad thing, one more thing going wrong. It's like one thing after another. And it's just a great giant year of disappointment. The only way that you can keep moving through that is by looking for the things that you can be grateful for, looking for the blessings, understanding that nothing lasts forever. And when I was doing this race, I kept telling myself that I just need to get to the top of the climb. There was five climbs in this race. All of them were extremely steep. I knew the backside uh, of these mountains, um, the descents were going to be rocky. Um, They were going to be painful on the quads. I knew that as I got past even the first two climbs, the next three climbs were going to be very difficult um, because my body was going to be more tired. But I kept telling myself, the only way that I'm going to get to that finish line is by moving forward. The only way is by getting to the top of this climb. I know it's hard. I know I'm tired. I know that I don't feel good. But I, how I'm reacting and what I'm focusing on right now is what's going to get me to that finish line. So I'm going to eat. I'm going to look around at the beauty that I'm in. I'm going to understand that I have this opportunity and this gift to be able to race here and how amazing that is. And also realize that, you know, being tired, we can push through that tiredness. We can push through some of the aches that are going on. You know, I don't have this big injury. I'm not um, limping. I'm not destroying myself. This is just working through some fatigue and the reality of what happens when you race this many miles so close together. So um, it's just being honest with yourself. And I'll tell you what, our adventure did not stop uh, after the race. In fact, Eddie and I are really excited to share with you um, a pretty funny story. Well, we can laugh about it now because when we were in it, we were not laughing, but it totally ties in to this run. It totally ties into um, the message that we want to share with you in this podcast because the next day we wanted to have like a fun day with Tyler and Drew. We wanted to travel. Um, the area that we were in in Switzerland, all it was like an hour and a half and we'd be in Chamonix. And Drew and Tyler had never been to Chamonix. Eddie hadn't. And I have just talked about it for years and years and years about UTMB and why I love it. And I just couldn't wait to show them all of my favorite things um, in Chamonix. I wanted to take them to the iconic blue track that has Mont Blanc in the background. Um, I want to take them to a coffee house and have a meal. And so we had planned on going. Um, we had breakfast in Switzerland that morning. We drove to Chamonix and we had lunch in, in, in Chamonix, France. And then we drove to Latouille, Italy, which is my favorite. I, I actually love staying on the Italian side when I race UTMB just to allow myself a little bit more uh, peace and quiet because UTMB is so crazy. The valley in Chamonix is so crazy those few days before the race. So there is this beautiful mountain town, this resort very quiet. It's small. It's, it's just, it's like heaven. So I decided let's now drive to Italy. So we, we drove through the mountain, through this tunnel from Chamonix into Italy. And we went to Latouille, Italy. We had dinner there. So we had essentially had a meal in three different countries in less than 12 hours. Like it, it was awesome. We were having a great day. 
Now it was time to head home. And as we head home, I am literally telling Tyler and Drew about my experience Several experiences that I've had in different countries of, you know, having to learn how to drive on one side of the road and um, how one of the times when I went to New Zealand, I accidentally put diesel, diesel gas into my car and wrecked it. And thankfully, because I was staying at this Airbnb with a family, they totally helped me. And I had to get on a plane the next day, like the next afternoon. So this was like five o'clock the day before that I'm leaving New Zealand. I put diesel gas into my car. The family says, hey, we have a guy. They, we go the next morning, take the car in. Their guy fixes my car within like an hour. It was amazing. Like it was just a full-on miracle. Fixes it. I'm able to get to the airport and to my flight on time. So I'm telling them this story. About 15 minutes later, I tell Eddie, I was like, you know what? I know that we have to get the boys to the train tomorrow. So they would be flying out the next day. We have to get the boys to the train. They have to be there at 4 a.m. And it was a 30-minute drive from Crans, Montana, and then a 30-minute drive to, to, the, um, to the train station, and then Eddie was going to come back to Crans, Montana, and we had an extra day. So the boys are flying back uh, Monday morning. Eddie and I are flying back early Wednesday morning, so we had a whole extra day. And I say, you know what? We should probably get gas. The gas is only – we only have a quarter tank. We still have to make our way back to Crans, Montana right now. And then in the morning, you have to do the round trip to the gas, you know, to the train station. So why don't we, you know, just get gas right now? So we stop and we get gas and then we continue on. What time is it by this time? Like 1030 at night, I think. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Close to, yeah, 1030, yeah, 11. Yeah. It's about 1030 at night. We start driving. We're probably like 20 probably like 20 or 30 minutes into our drive. We have like an hour and a half drive back home. Mm -hmm. And so we're 20 or 30 minutes into our drive. And then all of a sudden, like Eddie has these lights coming on like engine lights. And then it's telling him you need to pull over now. We're in a tunnel. And he's like, I don't know what these lights are. And you can kind of feel the car <laughs> isn't running right. And I look at him and I go, Oh my gosh, did you put diesel into our car? And he's like, I don't know. And so <laughs> he pulls over and, and we start kind of like backtracking. I'm like, I, I have no idea what this could possibly be, but this could very well be the same situation that I had in New Zealand. And we literally had just got done talking about it. Yeah. 15 minutes or so earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happened? Yeah. So I got out to get gas and I put gas in prior about two days before actually right before the race and it was no problem and then this one was in switzerland but i i mean it was late i was tired there's no excuse but the, i was late it was late i was tired and you know went and got gas and i couldn't read when it popped up there was like three different options and it just said i got i made out the word gasoline and in, in the, th <laughs> the three and i chose the one that was the cheapest and usually, diesel. I thought usually diesel was like more expensive. So that's why I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm good. And then when I like put the nozzle in, it was like, it wasn't like a great fit. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And, but I just, you know, can just filled it up. And yeah. So then I, you know, just went on my way. And, and, and to be, 
I mean, this was like everyone's worst nightmare, right? And I felt so bad for Eddie. But this is a very common thing, especially when you're traveling internationally. This is not uncommon. In fact, at the end of it, we'll tell you the rest of the story. The handful of people that we talked to were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we hear that all the time. Yeah, been there. So here's the thing, though. When we pull over, it is now, you know, 11 o'clock at night and we immediately go into this mode of, okay, we, there's something wrong with our rental car. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I remember what our contract said and the lady was so specific. If anything happens to this car, you are buying it. That our, our rule is you, there is no fixing it. There isn't taking to mechanic. If something happens, you have to buy the car. And I just like start sweating. But then I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Drew and Tyler can't miss their flight. We have, they have to be on that train in four hours. So I just go into full on, like find a solution mode. So we pull over, we're on the side of this highway and there's a lot of cool parts about where we actually pulled over. Yeah, it was, that was, we were literally on a highway and people are whizzing by us. There wasn't a lot of room on that shoulder. No, there wasn't. It was kind of sketchy. It was kind of sketchy, but so the first thing you do is, okay, these engine lights are coming on. They're telling me that I need to pull over. There's something obviously wrong. So we take out the manual. There is no part of the manual that's in English. It's in like nine <laughs> different languages, but no English. So then I start to call all the numbers. So I like look up like roadside assistance in Switzerland. So I call those numbers. No one speaks English. And, you know, so then I start speaking in Spanish. Nobody can speak Spanish. So we get a little bit nervous at that point. But then I'm like, no, we, we have to keep on knocking on every option here. And I really do hope this ends up helping somebody as, as they travel. If this ever happens to you. One of the things that um, that we've been so comfortable with is here in the United States. If you, if you break down anywhere in the United States at any time, like AAA is awesome. And if even if you don't have AAA, there's someone that's going to come help you. There's some type of roadside assistance. There's always someone you can call. There's Even if it's going to take a few hours, there is a will and a way. And pretty much no matter where you are in the United States, yes, there are some really long roads like on the way from SoCal to Arizona or some of those patches when you're on your way to Las Vegas where you're like literally out in the middle of nowhere. But there's something different about being in the middle of nowhere in a foreign country that doesn't offer the same services that maybe you're used to. And so we just start, and thankfully we had reception we just start Googling like different numbers. So I finally find this number that's like roadside assistance. Eddie was able to call AAA, but then we found out we didn't have AAA International. So we were, and there wasn't anything in Switzerland that was the equivalent. And so then I think, okay, if our number one thing first is to get Tyler and Drew back to Crans, Montana, that is the number one thing we're going to focus on right now. So Eddie finds a local taxi number. I look up on the map where we are. So I open up Google Maps and lo and behold, there is a McDonald's. Of course, of course. (laughs) There is a McDonald's a little more than half mile from us. So about a kilometer away is a McDonald's. So I'm like, okay, that is our point. If I, so I call the taxi driver and I say, hey, 
We will be there in 15 minutes at the McDonald's. I have the full address where they're like, oh, they're like, great. Our driver will be there in 15 minutes. So I look at Tyler and Drew. Now, over half an hour has passed. So we have been trying to troubleshoot, tr- find every avenue possible of getting someone there. While I'm getting them situated, Eddie's on the line trying to find somebody um, to come out like a roadside assistance. I think we were able to find some type of roadside assistance number in the area. It was like you dial like 116 or something like that. So he's taking care of that. Tyler and Drew grab all their stuff. Now remember, I'm not even 24 hours post-race. My body is so beat up and sore. Like I'm not ready to run. But I look at Tyler and Drew, I was like, you guys, we have to run all the way across this highway. We have to get over there to that off-ramp, and we have to go run into this city that we've never been into. I have my Google Maps out. We're going to navigate our way, and we're going to find this McDonald's. Thank goodness that this McDonald's is there. So we take off, and of course, it's an uphill for the off-ramp. So we go up. We're running uphill up this thing, and we're now it's like midnight. Now it's, it's full-on midnight. The guys now have, you know— negative four hours to get back up to Crans, Montana. We're running down the street, navigating through all these side streets, and we see those beautiful golden arches in the distance. When we get there, it's open. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that it was open. And then we kind of start to see that like, dude, this is actually like a really cool city. Like in that moment, I told myself, I look back at Tyler and Drew and I say, you guys, we're not laughing about this right now because I know all of us were kind of like worried and anxious. I go, we will later, but I'll tell you what, I don't think we could have broken down in a better spot. If we had broken down 15, 20 minutes ago before prior, I mean, we would have been in the middle of just this like hillside area right before hitting this massive tunnel. I mean, this tunnel was huge. So we could have broken down all along those points, but breaking down right here, we are right at the off ramp right next to this big, awesome little city that had a McDonald's in it. As soon as we get to the McDonald's, the tax, you see the taxi driver comes driving up like two minutes later. I go up to him Thankfully, he had uh, Apple Pay, so you were, you were able to pay for Apple Pay. He takes the guys up. It's an hour drive to Crans, Montana. So this taxi driver took the boys all the way up up the mountain. They were able to pack, get all their stuff going. They were able to grab another taxi, and they got to the train. So they were good. And that's all that we cared about. As soon as they left, um, and it was funny, too, because you could tell Tyler and Drew were like, uh, we, are you going to be okay? <laughs> like this is the first time too, that we had seen kind of like some street walkers and, you know, maybe in the middle of the night, people living on the street that don't look super safe. But I told the guys, I was like, listen, I have run all over the world. I'm going to get on the phone with Eddie right now. I'm going to be fine. I'm less than a mile away. I'm going to run. Now I had been running. We had run all the way to McDonald's. And I, I remember asking myself, I cannot believe I'm running right now. And we were running fast because we were trying to make this taxi. So I call Eddie and I was like, stay on the phone with me. I'm running through this city. I'm navigating these streets. There's not a lot of people around, but the few people that I've passed, uh, you know, I need to keep running. <laughs> While I'm on the phone with him, a policeman comes rolling up to Eddie. And what was what was that interaction like? So I am. Um, well, you you were able to get a tow truck. Yeah. So I'm just waiting for the tow truck at that yeah. point. And then I'm standing in front of the car and I see a on a dark highway. I see it's not a lit up freeway. <laughs> I see a cop coming my way and and he sees that I'm obviously on the side there. So he pulls over with him. It was like 
him and this lady. And I motioned to them like, Hey, slow down. And, and then they slowed down and they didn't like come all the way to the shoulder. They were kind of in the lane still. And, and broken English, you know, they were like saying something to me. I couldn't even understand them because it was too far away. And I go, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for the taxi, not taxi, the okay. tow truck. And I'm waiting for the tow truck. And they look at me and, and the guy basically says, okay, wait a few minutes. And then he took <laughs> off. I was like, what? How does that help me? He just said, okay, wait a few minutes. And then he took off. It's now I been still over have no hour. idea what that meant. but It's now been over an hour. And uh, the thing with the tow truck coming too was we had been going back and forth with phone calls and getting mixed messages so it was a little frustrating we weren't really sure if a tow truck was indeed going to come yeah the whole language barrier was rough that like was, you could not explain what happened where we were we had no idea where we were mm-hmm. like essentially like you know we looked up at the sign that was kind of all we had and it was really that well, language barrier was one, tough. one of the resources this was the most helpful thing when i had called i had talked to a gentleman who had a little bit of english i was so grateful and he said listen i can send you an sms and if you just respond to that push that button in there he's like i'll be you it will send me your location so that saved us once he saw my location he's like all right i'm going to call a tow truck um, to come and get you well then they I went running. Um, I'm on my way back now. So Eddie had that interaction with the policeman. And then by the time I get back to Eddie, they call and they say, well, this is how much it's going to be. Are you going to pay that or not? And how, how much was it to tow us? I think $500. I don't Listen to this, though. This is so amazing. Our car was a Toyota. And they said, we will tow you to the Toyota dealership. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, like, where's the Toyota dealership? They're like, it's just right there. And we, we see on the map, it's not even, it's maybe 400 meters from where we were. So not only were we able to get to a safe spot to drop off Drew and Tyler at McDonald's, we were also right next door to the Toyota dealership where we had to be towed to. And so they told us like, are you going to pay it or not? And Eddie and I look at each other. We're like, well, I guess we have to, (laughs) we don't have a choice. And so the, after another hour of waiting, Finally, this tow truck comes and the gentleman pops out, doesn't speak any English whatsoever, but he eventually locks on our car. He has these two huge hooks. He locks on the car and then he instructs us to get inside the car. Now, here in the United States, you typically get inside the truck with the tow truck driver. You do not stay in the car when they're towing your truck or your car. Well, Eddie and I get in the car and Eddie just keeps looking at me. He's like, this is so sketch, dude. This is so sketch. <laughs> and the guy runs the motor, puts our car, rolls our car on top of the bed of his tow truck, and then proceeds to just take off down the highway. We get off on the off-ramp right there. And again, thankfully, we were so close to the Toyota dealership. But once we get to the Toyota dealership, he now has to offload our car. And so Eddie and I are sitting there and it was so sketchy the way that it's offloaded, like the car's moving back and forth and we're, we're just sitting each other. And I just start laughing and I tell Eddie, I'm like, seriously, you have to laugh. Like, how can you not? Like this story is going to be one for the ages, like the morning that we have or the night that we have had so far. So then he looks at us and he says, do you need a taxi? And I was like, in my mind, I'm thinking well, we can just call the same company, but this guy could also probably get us a taxi a lot quicker because he speaks the language. So I say, yes, 
He's like, all right, he'll be here in five minutes. He then waves us off, says goodbye, tells us where to drop off the, the keys. We drop it off in this little lockbox. He leaves. I am not kidding. Like five minutes later, this guy pulls up like in a sports car. His eyes are completely bloodshot. He says nothing in English. We get in the car. Homie drives like 100 miles an hour up to Crans, Montana. This is an hour drive. Probably took this guy like 38 minutes to get to the top. When he gets us to our hotel, we get out and he's like, do you have cash? It's $300. We're like, what? $300 for a taxi ride? Are you kidding me? And what did you say? Ridiculous. <laughs> I said, no, I don't cash. <laughs> so then he magically pulls out his little Apple Pay pad from underneath his seat. Yeah, where did that come from? He I don't like, know, all but sudden... Eddie and I have traveled enough. So Eddie has traveled all over the world, too. We've traveled a lot together. He's traveled a lot without me. But we have been in many places where when a taxi driver knows you're from out of the country, just get ready to pay a little bit more. And this was very much that situation. So Eddie and I look at each other. We're like, uh-uh, we've been here before, buddy. Like, we know that you're pulling one on us. We don't have any cash. But then also we were like, we, we have to pay. So we pay the $300 taxi ride, the $500 tow truck. And then we see that the dealership opens up at 7.30 in the morning. So it is now, what time is it? 2.30 in the morning? Yeah, it was, I think, close to 3. Because close to 3, because the guys were still looking for a taxi yeah, driver. So it was almost three. we get into our room. I check in with Drew and Tyler, and I say, you know, have you guys been able to get a taxi driver? They're like, no, we still haven't found one. I was like, no way. Eddie and I are so exhausted. I'm laying in bed now searching i'm i'm calling trying to find different taxi drivers and then thankfully like 15 minutes later drew texts me he's like we got one i was like praise god yay so they get their taxi driver um i set the alarm for 7 15 because i want to be the first caller into the toyota dealership i think i maybe slept three hours now i'll tell you what you guys this is not good recovery i have not had a good recovery from the race immediately after the race we did our little three country tour um and then of course in the middle of the night i'm running up and down the freeway and into new cities i haven't had a good night of sleep and so now here we're going on a bit of stress Eddie and I are laying in bed and we're just thinking, okay, this can go one of two ways. We have completely destroyed the car and its engine because there are a couple things that happen. When you put diesel into your engine, if you drive for too long, you can destroy the engine and um, it can even catch on fire. Thankfully, there was no smoke. Also, I think one thing that saved us was that the engine wasn't completely empty. There was still like a quarter tank in there. So it was able to use the good gas and then it sensed the bad gas and we stopped immediately. So I think that really did help us. But we were nervous about one. We know how dealerships, mechanics, how they all work. Nobody is able to get your car in and do a big fix within less than 24 hours. I mean, that's really hard to find. And here we are in a foreign country. We're foreigners asking for a big favor. And so I'm just praying as I'm falling asleep. Okay, this we, we essentially have 24 hours to make all this work. And we were a little sad. Because in a way, we were celebrating our, our wedding anniversary by extending our trip a couple days because we didn't hadn't really done our wedding anniversary was in June, but we had planned for this trip to be celebrating that. So we had had plans for the next day, and um, so we were a little bummed, and 
we had a pretty good conversation at some point. We we're like, we, we have to keep that perspective and just be grateful. We're healthy. We're fine. We're in Switzerland. The guys are on the plane. They made their trip. Um, the car didn't blow up, but it, it took us a while to get there. So the next morning I call and thankfully somebody did speak English there. And he basically in a few words told me, listen, we are so busy. We can't fix your car today. It's, it'll, we can't fix it till later in the week. And I just would not take no for an answer. I told him, listen, I, I, I understand that you guys are so busy, but I am, I'm begging you as a mother who wants to get back home to her kids. We have a flight tomorrow and we need to get this car fixed today. Please, can you help us out? You know, we know we made a big mistake and we feel so foolish that we put diesel in there, but it would just mean so much to us. And so we went back and forth. I'm talking to this guy for like 15, 20 minutes and for whatever reason, that little empathy card was played and he went on and said, you know what? We feel for you. Everyone here, we have families too. And you know, we travel a lot too. We know how hard this is to be in this situation. Let me see if one of the appointments today will give up their spot for you. And someone did. I mean, that was, that was amazing. That was awesome. So somebody gave up their spot for us and I hung up the phone and I told Eddie, I was like, you know what? We can either sit on our hands and be anxious all day today while they work on our car, or we can go and just enjoy the day. And we did. We, we went and had a lovely breakfast. We went and walked around um, all of Crans, Montana. We went into shops. We had good coffee. It was a beautiful day. And then later in the afternoon, we still hadn't heard from them. We knew they closed at five. And I told Eddie, I said, listen, it's 90 minutes before they close. I feel like I need to call and just check in. Well, one of the rules that I have when I travel is to make friends with the people with where you're staying. This is so important that you do this, especially when you're traveling internationally. It was the first thing we did. Uh, we made friends with the manager and the front desk guy. His name was Paul. We literally learned his entire life story, how he was adopted from Brazil and he lived in France for 30 years and how he 10 years ago moved to Crans, Montana and he loves it there. And we, we had the best conversation. I think we even started talking about marriage and life partners and things like that. He made us espressos. So every day we would talk to Paul. Every day as we are in our comings and our goings, we'd go into the li lobby and we would talk to Paul. And then I met some of the other ladies that worked on the staff. So every day we had these encounters and these conversations and that ended up being a lifesaver to us because when I called um, around 3.30, they told us straight up the car will, will um, no, what happened was no, the person that spoke English wasn't there. And so all the guy said was email me, no English, email me. And I told Eddie, oh my gosh, we have 90 minutes before this place closes. I don't even know the, if, like, if they understand me. And I was like, oh my gosh, we can go ask Paul. Let's go ask Paul or one of the ladies downstairs. So we go downstairs, I bring my phone and it was Isabel working. He was super sweet. And I explained to her our situation and she was very sympathetic. And she said, all right, here, give me the phone number. You know, let me take care of it for you. So she gets on the phone and she, she is awesome. Like she totally took charge. She was a boss. She was just basically like, they need to get their car today. What can we do to make that happen? I'll make sure they get a taxi down there and they are there before you guys close. She totally set this up. And honestly, I don't, I don't think that we would have gotten our car that day had, had that not happened. Yeah. So at four o'clock, so in, no, like four 30, cause the place closed at five 45 It's an hour drive down to the car dealership. 
she tells us she gets a call and she's like they're ready for you and I already called a taxi for you your taxi will be here in a couple minutes and I literally I just like got up and I gave her this big old hug I kissed her on both sides of her cheeks and I just said thank you so much you have totally saved our trip we go down there and Eddie and I have no idea how much they're going to charge us I mean what were we thinking we looked it up what was the range? It was a big range. Yeah, depending like on how bad it could. Three hundred to a thousand, or a little over a thousand, I think. Yeah, I, th- I, well, I think it was what I was seeing was like five hundred to three thousand. It was, it was. I guess it, the the range was so big because of the amount of damage. So if they needed to replace parts in the engine, then this would increase the price. So we weren't really sure. Um, obviously, we we're not happy that we. <laughs> We had already spent so much money, so we spent another. Actually, our taxi drive down was half the price, by the way, to the dealership. So we're like, "Mm, that's interesting. (laughs) We get there. No one in the place speaks English. But as soon as we walk in, when they see us, they're like, oh, petrol, diesel, diesel, petrol. And I'm like, yes. They know who they could like tell we were the Americans. And so they come over and they were so sweet. They were just like, oh, sorry, like this is the price. And it ended up being just under $700. So um, all in all, that little mistake cost us uh, about $1,200 uh, when all is, is <laughs> said and done. But I'll tell you what, the car was good as new because really all they needed to do was just flush out that diesel. And because there was no damage done to the car, it was flush out the diesel and then just put in the right gas and then we were fine. So we still had a solid 24 hours before our flight. Uh, We went to um, Ansi, France. We had a day in France. And then I'll tell you what, the journey still continued. I made the mistake If you have flown into Geneva Airport, you must know that there is a France side and there is a Switzerland side. When you go to rent a car online on booking.com like I did, I knew this because I had already made this mistake several years ago when I went to UTMB. You fly into the Switzerland side and I had accidentally booked a car. they have two car uh, offices, rental car offices. There's a Swiss side and the France side. And there's a budget rental on each side. I accidentally had booked at UTMB years ago on the France side. So you literally have to go through customs, go through the border, get your car, and then you have to return it on the France side when you're coming back. And then you have to get through to the Switzerland side to fly out. It's a nightmare. It is. There's nothing easy about it. It's not smooth sailing. And they also do things very differently, which makes it even longer. So I knew when I was booking my rental car to not do that. And for whatever reason... I don't know how it happened. I had booked a car through budget rental on the France side. So when we picked up our car, I had told Eddie, we have to remember to return it on the France side. Because if you don't, if you return it on the Switzerland side, it's just as well as if you never returned your car. And they're very clear about that. So we have a wonderful day in Ansi, France. And we say, let's stay in a hotel you know, minutes from the airport because we were flying out at 7 a.m. So you need to be at the airport several hours before. We knew that we had to return the rental car. We knew we had to get through customs. Um, We had a a 
kind of a hiccup with, we flew Delta, but then it was given over to France, um, Air France. And so we weren't able to do a uh, check-in online. We weren't able to get our tickets. So they said, you have to go to the airport to do all that. So already we're like, wow, the morning is stacking up against us. So when we checked into our hotel in Geneva, the night before we're supposed to fly out, I tell Eddie, I was like, let's just stay here, have a great dinner. And it was, it was a nice hotel. We had an awesome dinner um, outside. Uh, we really enjoyed that. We had a nice room. And I said, you know what? Let's do ourselves a favor because this hotel has a shuttle to the airport. Why don't we just return our rental car tonight? And that way we can just like be done with that in the morning so that all we actually have to do is just go to the airport. We can go on the Switzerland side, get our tickets and make our way to the gate. And that is what we decided to do, right, Ed? <laughs> I don't know if you want to dive into this No, part. I don't. <laughs> a nightmare again <laughs> so we put into Google, was it google maps we were using yep we put into google maps budget rental on the france side it comes up shows you exactly where it is how many times did we circle the airport <laughs> trying to find this return to the french rental cars at least six at least six times yeah Y'all, when we finally found it, it was over an hour of driving. Yep. And we, at by the end, we're kind of like giggling. I was like, can you imagine if this was in the morning at 4 a.m.? I go, we would probably be talking about divorce. <laughs> we would be at each other's throats because we were both trying to find it. So we were just like, no, make it right here. Should we try this? I mean, what do you think? I don't know. We've tried every single avenue, every single turn, and it was just, we couldn't find That's it. That's why I think we would be horrible at the Amazing Race. No, we would like, be amazing No, we wouldn't. We would be horrible because we would like get so upset at each other in the car. But we the weren't directions. getting upset. At the, I mean, we were, we were kind to each other when we were trying to find the rental place. Yeah, I think we, we were, were frustrated with the, with the map. We were more frustrated with the map. And thankfully, once again, make friends with people. Eddie made friends with some taxi drivers. And one of our, one of our final attempts, we, he finally like went down. You took a ramp down underneath the airport at this point. Where only buses can go. Where only buses can go and taxis can go. And so Eddie was just like, I don't care. I'm getting care. out and I am talking to, some, talking to some taxi drivers. And they were the nicest guys. Yeah. And they even said, hey, where you, where you are right now, you're going to have to back all the way up and turn around here. And so two guys hop out of their taxi cars and they start like motioning to Eddie, like helping him like navigate, backing up his car and then what lane he needs to go into. They were so sweet. And they told us exactly what to do. And then we finally found it. We had to like cross the border, then turn back around and cross the border again. And then we we found the parking structure where you turn the car in on the France side. And I am not kidding. When we finally dropped those keys off in the box, that, that was like heaven. Yeah. But you know what? It didn't end there because as soon as we dropped them off, two guys standing there were looking at us like, oh, are you going to try to get over onto the Switzerland side? Because that the Switzerland side of the airport was where the only side that our shuttle goes to. So our hotel shuttle only goes on the Switzerland side. We and I look at him and we Eddie and I both had to use the bathroom and I was like, I was like, oh, we're fine. And then so we like walk away because these people looked really upset. And I was like, I don't want to get into like a disgruntled like back and forth with these people. And so we walked to the bathroom and I look at Eddie. I was like, oh my gosh, are we gonna have a hard time getting through? And so we pull up our What's helpful is if you pull up that you have flights. So we've pulled up the information that we had a flight for the next day. 
as we make our way toward the border guy, I'm just like getting so nervous. But the people at the hotel before we left, remember what they said? They're like, just be really friendly. Smile, smile a lot. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, seriously? Like this is how, this is how it goes down, people. Be friendly and kind. And if they like you, then they're going to let you across the border. <laughs> And so that's what we did. We were like really light and like laid back and calm. And we're like, hi, how you doing? Oh, yeah, we just need to catch our we need to catch our shuttle back to the hotel. He's like, do you have a flight? And I was like, yeah, we have a flight. It's for tomorrow morning. But by this time, it was like 1030 at night. Yeah. It took us, I think, all said and done an hour and a half to return our car to the airport. And our hotel was a three minute drive to the airport. Okay, so across the street. Yeah, literally across the street. (laughs) <laughs> pathetic we were it wasn't pathetic because you know what we had a good plan that night we did we were so grateful going to bed like we were like laughing about it. i'm like can you imagine if we had to do that tomorrow morning like we would have missed our flight oh yeah easily <laughs> we would have been fist fighting yeah, that would not have been good <laughs> so good it was it was quite the adventure but i'll mm-hmm. tell you what even while we were running when I was running with Drew and Tyler to the taxi and we were giggling about it. I, I had to, at one point tell myself, I'm so grateful that we, it stinks. We broke down. Yes. You can always say, Oh my gosh, this stinks. I can't believe that my rental car, like I did all this damage. I'm going to have me paying thousands of dollars. Like I can't believe that we now have to find taxis and get a tow and this is impossible and hours and hours and hours are passing. This is not the trip that I hope for. But I had to count the wins. That's how you keep moving forward. It's how you continue to solve the situation. You know, having a clear mind and staying grateful, it helps you actually make good decisions. And I remember just saying, I'm so grateful we we broke down here. We broke down right by a McDonald's. We also broke down right by the Toyota dealership. I mean, Eddie and I talked about that. You know, we talked about that so many times. We're mm-hmm. like, what are the chances yeah. out of all the places that we had driven that day? We drove through three countries and most of our driving was in the middle of nowhere or on the side of a mountain. Would have made it even better if we got like a McFlurry and some fries <laughs> at McDonald's. <laughs> that would have made it way no, better. It wouldn't have. I wouldn't have been able to run back to the car. I'll tell you that. But keeping that perspective is so powerful. Even when Eddie and I were waiting to hear about the damage, you know, I I told him, I was like, this isn't ideal. This isn't ideal for our bank account. This is not clearly where we want to be spending our money, but we need to be so grateful that we're able to get out of the situation that people gave up their appointment at this car dealership so that our car could be fixed. I mean, who does that? What? what, I mean, that doesn't happen. (laughs) When you turn your car in to be fixed, you want it fixed right away. You know you're already going to be waiting in a long line. You know, the mechanics always take way longer than you hope them to. And so when a mechanic calls you and says, hey, can someone else go in front of you? Can you wait a little longer? I mean, come on. That was, there were so many good things that happened in that. And choosing to just kind of focus on the good is going to get you through. It's going to propel you forward. And we'll always be able to use that. I mean, hopefully yep. this will help somebody else that is traveling internationally. Um, one, do not put diesel in your car. Know that it is very easy to do it, especially internationally. If you can't read anything on there, go and try and find somebody that can help you. I mean, part of it too, the gas station was closed. 
So we went to the gas station after hours. It was just the pump yeah. in this, this dark area. So that was a kind of a, a, the odds were stacked against Eddie as he pulled up there. But it was kind of ironic that I had just spoken about my experience in New Zealand and how embarrassed I was because to this day, People still bring that up to me. Really? Oh, yeah. When I travel, people are like, hey, Sally, don't put diesel in the rental. Okay. Hey, idiot. <laughs> hey, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> hey, idiot. Yep, still an idiot over here. That's so. me. <laughs> Is there anything else, Ed, that you want to add on to before we wrap this up? This is maybe the longest podcast you and I have ever done. Man, yeah. It's perfect don't, for a long run. I don't have anything left to say because... I think we're almost done. It's been two hours <laughs> plus. I'm He's not used ready. to talking this long. He's ready to, to like go have a good meal, right? <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Well, I want to end the podcast uh, first and foremost by saying thank you so much for tracking with us, hanging out with us. I always love to envision our listeners and you know, sometimes it's just that idea of envisioning them across the table from us right mm, here. Yep. You know, we're sitting here with our cup of coffee. I like to envision you with a cup of coffee too. And us just being real with one another, because that's really what we want to convey in the podcast. Each time we share is this is real life, the highs and the lows, um, the hilarious moments, the hard moments, and just going back to the, the key words, in the message for this podcast. One, just gratitude. Gratitude can carry you. Uh, and I, I would say that so often in that race, especially as I hit that super, super rough patch at the end, seeing Eddie, Tyler, and Drew's faces, because they'd never been to Switzerland before, you know, it was my sixth time there. They were so happy. Like every, every time I saw them, I, it was like a four-year-old on Christmas morning. And they just could not stop. It's so beautiful here. It's so amazing. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe we're here. This is incredible. Coming in and, and seeing that just reminded me of that, too. And I thought, you know, like, if anything, like, we're we're doing this together, and it is incredible. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is a story and a memory that they'll have for the rest of their life. This is something they'll always go back and remember and share forever. And I get to be a part of it. Gratitude can carry you Grat gratitude when you focus on that instead of the hard stuff instead of the stuff that's that's uncomfortable is going to propel you forward and again I feel you I know it's a lot harder to say than to do because I hit those times in my life where let's be honest I'm like I don't want to be grateful <laughs> I don't want to I don't I actually can't see the good because there's so much crap and I'm just gonna be here in the crap and you know what sometimes you need a day where you do that fine Look at all of it, but then you need to tell yourself and promise yourself that you're going to step up out of all of that hard stuff and keep moving forward because the only way to get to the top of the mountain is by taking a step forward, and it's one step after another over and over and over again, and that's exactly what life is. You know, you, uh, from the time you took your first step, you took a step forward. Your whole life has been lived moving forward. You are supposed to be moving forward at all times. And when I look at this trip, Eddie, that we took from the race to our car breaking down to us trying to navigate and find um, <laughs> the uh, budget rental on the France side of the airport, we got a little bit of running and a little bit of real life uh, opportunities where we had to do just that. We had to keep moving forward. We had to keep on finding solutions to the problems we we're in, but also remain grateful 
to have those things. Those moments stunk, but man, I kept on telling, I'm so glad that I'm doing this with you. I know that we will laugh about it one day, but I'm so grateful that I get to work through this stuff with you. And I know that it's going to help others as well. So as you continue on in your week, my friends, I want to challenge you to focus on the good, focus on the beauty, keep a grateful heart because that is what is going to propel you forward in no matter what season you are in. And I can't tell you enough how grateful I am to have you here as part of the podcast and listening with us. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Uh, Eddie and I read those every single day. They have been a great encouragement to us. Some of them are so intense that I just, I'm, I'm reminded of myself that we are in this together. And um, if we can encourage each other, if we can be a light, just like those people were a light to me on that mountain, if I can see somebody else doing something hard, I know that I can do it too. So you're going to respond to life in accordance to how you think and focus on it. So do yourself a favor and choose a stronger focus because you know what? That focus will carry you forward, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Keep choosing strong. Mm-hmm.